Fright Rags has been bringing you the best in horror apparel and accessories since 2003, offering a wide range of products for your favorite creature features, slashers, flicks, and cult classics. Collections include the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Universal Monsters, Night of the Living Dead, Creep Show, Twin Peaks, The Evil Dead, and so many more. Uh, coming April 7th, Fright Rags is unleashing their new collection of Shaun of the Dead merchandise, uh, featuring new shirts, designs, and a classic Winchester pub pint glass. All officially licensed and available now at fright-rags.com. Colors of the Dark listeners get 10% off when they use code COD10 at checkout. Tonight's episode is brought to you by Severin Films. Severin Films presents the Euro Crypt of Christopher Lee 8 Blu-ray box set featuring new scans of 60s classics Castle of the Living Dead, Crypt of the Vampire, Sherlock Holmes and the Deadly Necklace, Torture Chamber of Dr. Sadism, The Long Lost Challenge of the Devil, and the never-aired anthology series Theater Macabre, hosted by Lee, plus new 88-page book by Jonathan Rigby. Pre-order now at www.severin-films.com. Follow Severin Films on social media for details of their upcoming releases, including the Dungeon of Andy Milligan box set, UHD debuts of Alex de la Iglesia's Day of the Beast and Brigitte Durango, Jodorowsky's Santa Sangri, new special editions of Grizzly, Day of the Animals, Nosferatu, and Venice, and more only from Severin Films. Tonight's episode is also brought to you by the new film, I Am Lisa, just released from Mill Creek Entertainment and Mutiny Pictures. The supernatural revenge flick, I Am Lisa, is now available to rent or own on DVD, Blu-ray, and digital. It took a town to beat her down and a full moon to get revenge. Bitten by a werewolf, a young woman seeks revenge against those who've left her for dead in the woods. Buy I Am Lisa on DVD at available or available at Walmart stores and other online outlets. It's packed with bonus features like the feature commentary with writer-producer Eric Winkler, director Patrick Ray, and actress Kristen Vaganos, plus it includes a digital HD redemption to Movie Spree, where you can rent the film or add it to your Movie Spree digital library. In 1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been over 40 years, and Fangoria is better than ever, each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horrors past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. Head to Fangoria.com to learn more and to subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter promo code COLORS, that is C-O-L-O-R-S, to save 25% off your yearly subscription. That is promo code COLORS. Welcome to Colors of the Dark. I'm your co-host, Rebecca McKendry, and with me is Elric Kane. How are you doing? I am good. I just came off a really exciting conversation that's going to play later. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wait, I should have said the newly vaccinated Elric Kane. Yes, uh, we are both. Yes, yes we, we are both vaccinated. Very We were vaccinated reactions. during Ma- Messiah of Evil. <laughs> oh my God. So Messiah of Evil. Um, so we did our Messiah of Evil screening on Friday night. And we um, both had gotten vaccines. Mine was at 1030 that morning. So it, it was like a full 12 hours before the screening, like almost 12 hours exact. And what you didn't get yours until later in the day, right? Yeah. 
And so um, my doctor had warned me in advance that about 10 people who get the second vaccine may have some type of like run a fever or, you know, feel a little something, but it's only 10%. And by no means you still, of course, should get the vaccine. And so I, we kept joking like that one of us was going to go down during the screening. And my money was on Elric. And the screening starts and we're about a half an hour into the movie. And I'm like, it's really cold in here. I'm going to go put a sweatshirt on. And so I go put my sweatshirt on like a half an hour later. I'm like, I need fuzzy socks. And then I need a blanket. And then literally halfway through the movie, it dawns on me that I am sitting here just shivering wrapped in like four layers um, while watching this film. And then I checked my temperature and I had 101 fever throughout most of that screening. Which is the perfect um, way to see that movie. Yeah. If you can do it, if you can pull it off, that's how you want to see the side of evil. <laughs> it was intense. And then at the end, I, I had to kind of like, do I tell everybody that I'm like running a really high fever at this point or just go with it? So I'm hoping I wasn't too delirious. But, you had a um, fever dream fever. So that's good. Yeah, it was um, wild. It was. That, that was a great screening. That was yes. a fun one to do. Fun to walk people through through such an interesting uh you know art horror it's yeah it's just a really cool one if you haven't seen it mm-hmm. check it out we're, we're going to be a little briefer up the top today because we've already je- you know we've got a really ex- a fun deep conversation with somebody who we've wanted to talk to on the show a lot mm-hmm. who has some incredible books on horror and lots of different topics so we t- we jump around there's lots of deep cuts naturally built into this a lot episode of deep cuts so we're a little talk. yeah so but we did want to mention just up top you know um we wanted to mention a couple of the new things and things we just watched so I watched a couple of interesting ones and nothing that knocked my socks off. Uh, there's a brand new one called The Toll, which mm-hmm. I think um, has kind of a cool setup that you'd like, which is it's very much almost exactly like Windchill, which you put me onto this year. It's I love a, Windchill. Okay. Yeah, so it, it, it basically starts in a car. Somebody's gotten off a long plane ride and she it's very late at night. And uh, the Uber driver looks like he's kind of picked her rather than other people based on her profile. So it could be kind of creepy. And he pulls up to her. She gets and she's exhausted. She wants none of it. She's like, get me to my dad's house he lives very far away and doesn't want to engage in conversation the guy of course wants to talk to her and they go down uh, at some point they turn on a kind of like long country road and you get the feeling oh is he like stalker guy did he plant this whole thing this is all very early in the setup and they are in the middle of nowhere and the car stops and she's pissed at him and thinking he's some sort of killer and she's you know super paranoid about that for pretty obvious reasons and uh the you realize there's something outside the car and it keeps writing on the car, on the back of the car, and the, like the dust, it says, you know, you'll have to pay the tall man. You can't stop it. Let's let's just creepy things. They start realizing they're work, walking in circles and back to the car, and then it really starts to open up into a pretty creepy film. I mean, there's a lot of things I liked about it. Um, I don't know if it all completely landed by the end, but there was a lot of interesting things. You get whole psychic worlds uh, of each character's kind of past traumas playing out as the as this character who's a slender man s kind of character. The tall man is wanting clearly these two people to maybe harm each other in hopes that that will be the toll they receive. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say more than that because it it's you know it's brand new and I think some people are actually going to really like this one. I liked it quite a lot. Um, I didn't love it. It's just you know, it, but but I did like the setup. So that's called the tall man. Oh, just, sorry, the toll. I'm, the I'm toll. getting it's not the tall man. Yeah, toll. Well, the new one that I watched is one that um, was recommended to both of us. I think you actually mentioned it on our Deep Cuts episode that we should watch it. Um, and this is You Go to My Head. And I am going to to mispronounce this director's name. I apologize now. Um, Dimitri D. Clear. There's a Q in there and a bunch mm-hmm. of Cs. I apologize. Um, Clear. We're going to go with it. So this 
is really slow. Um, and it, this one, I, I think that while I watched it, I text Elric about how angry I was at it. Like it infuriated me. And now a couple days later, I'm kind of like, you know what? I think you should watch it, Elric. Um, well, it was recommended <laughs> to me and then I recommended it to you, but it was one of our listeners. He said, oh, I think this is going to be really your kind of movie. And then I said, you to watch it. So maybe I put the wrong one of us initially on it. <laughs> so, well, the setup sounded really cool. So the setup yeah. is that this girl, it's set in the Saharan desert, um, just uh, like the Saharan desert of Morocco. Mm-hmm. Absolutely beautiful setting. Like it made me want to visit Morocco, like midway through the movie when I was getting bored, which I'll talk about in a sec. Instead, I was on my computer Googling Morocco. Um, so it, it had an effect of something. Um, but this girl is in this car accident in the middle of the desert. She wakes up. She has no memory of why she's there. She has a watch that says, I love you, Daphne. So she thinks her name might be Daphne, but she's not sure. And then um, she kind of stumbles and, and ends up collapsing from exhaustion and dehydration. And this man, Jake, happens upon her um, sees that, you know, she's, she's struggling to survive and says, okay, I'm going to go nurse her back to health. He then at one very point says, your name is Kitty. And she wakes up and he says, he's her husband. And they go from there. And you spend the whole movie thinking that he is, that she has no memory and that he is faking this whole thing that he's, he's, as I kept saying, he's overboarding her. He's, mm-hmm, he's yeah. totally overboarding her. It's Goldie yeah. Hawn and um, Kurt Russell. And so you spend the whole movie think that he's overboarding her until the third act. And then the movie starts really turning on itself multiple times. Ooh, don't tell it me does that. have, I won't, I'm going to stop there. It has really cool twists in the third act, but those first two acts are the two of them meandering around the desert. He's an architect. He has a really cool house in the middle of the desert. But aside from that, there's, literally like one other person in the movie you know what's funny about this review is that is like my favorite subgenre <laughs> and like whoever recommended and i just forgot, i have so many movies i've probably talked about on pearson of that involve amnesia false identities and wandering around weird places with another person so i'm like maybe this is it that this is, is it movie. it is literally right, so it. and then the first act they meander around the desert and then they go to the seaside because morocco's got this beautiful place where the sand meets the sea where it's literally desert up to the ocean Ocean. I've never been, and I want to go after. No, neither these. have I. You know, no, I haven't been. That's one of the, my dream places because it's, of um, the sheltered sky. One of yeah. mine. So somebody find okay, us a horror going. film yeah, festival in Morocco, so we can go. We will do a live show in Morocco for anyone who asks. <laughs> for anybody, yeah, um, I it, like it. It sounds amazing. Okay, I will um, watch this one, and we'll report on a deep cut then. Because yeah, because I when I first watched this, I I was so bored until the third act, and I was like, okay, now I'm good. But two days later, I am I am, or it's, I guess it's been a couple days. I am. Ref- Reflecting on it, going okay, it's doing some interesting stuff. You need yeah, that's, to see it. Okay, no, I do. I do want to see that. It. Is you go to my head. It's on Amazon for like five bucks right now. Okay, it's on Amazon. Okay, um, the second one, another new one. Well, I'll, I'll mention one in passing. There's a really intense new film on Shutter called Violation, mm-hmm. uh, directed by Dusty um, Menes. Macanelli and Madeline Simsfure. And let me just say, uh, beyond the fact that it's just a super intense, um, uh, you know, it has rape revenge elements that I, I don't want to get too into spoilery, uh, but it has one of my favorite performances of, of the year, which is Madeline Simsfure, one of the, the co-directors. She's also the lead and she really gives a just utterly ferocious performance. I'm not going to talk about it here because in our actual conversation coming up, uh, that movie does come up. So I'll, I'll wait for the context there. Um, but the one I did want to bring up 
So this is interesting. It's one of the first films I've paid for to watch in one of these virtual cinemas. I've gone to film festivals and done stuff, but I have yet to ever support like a virtual, like this was at the Lemley and mm-hmm. it's a brand new film. And I thought, well, I'm probably not going to, I'm about to go back to real theaters probably pretty soon. Personally, um, I am going to buy Honeydew because I knew you would, you had seen it early at a festival. I saw it at, I don't even remember which one. It was very early. Summer. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so this is still just only available at virtual screening still. And this is, I think it might be coming to shutter. Um, um, this has most people are talking about it because it's Steven Spielberg's son in, in the lead um, by somebody called Deborah Milburn. And the thing I like, I didn't give this the best. Is this is one of those tough ones. I gave it two and a half stars on Letterbox, and I was really torn between two and a half and three. And as it headed into the last act, I was like, okay, this could go to a three or even a three and a half star film if the ending lands with me. And the ending clearly didn't for me yeah. at all. It felt very gen- like I'd seen it a million times. There's, there's that- like, French extreme movies and things like that, you know. So that was my complaint with it as well. I don't know if you recall my review. Yeah. From back in the summer. Um, but it was that when they were talking about ergo poisoning mm-hmm. and the whole town being mad, I was like, this is cool. It's super interesting. Because then the it's setup, like, yeah. do they have it? Is the whole town crazy? Well, I'm, I'm sure, but they never kind of go and all the way then with it. Yeah. Where it goes in the third act, I was like, oh, it just became I've like. I've seen that. Yeah, yeah. I've seen that. I no, wanted, I wanted yeah. a different ending. Well, and the, and the best thing about it, and if, it's actually probably the one of the lower ratings of given something that I also quite liked. Like, I actually enjoyed watching the whole film. I think the style and the direction was super fun. I think the quirkiness of some of the sound design, musical choices, and even some of the split f- screen stuff it did. I actually really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. And so it, it kind of, so I feel like a little, like I was a little unfair, but it's just, you know, sometimes if something goes too familiar, uh, that has so much potential, you, it can kind of, you know, be, for me, that was a little disappointing. But if you haven't seen a lot of things like French extreme movies and that, it might, you know, feel super fresh. But the one thing I wanted to say about this one is not the two leads, the young couple. It's a, a young couple who are kind of uh, driving. One's an actor. One is a, what is her specialty? Like she specializes She's like in a grad botany. Yeah, it's like botany because she knows a lot about like, um, she's there specifically to research fungus growing on wheat or something Yeah, on like wheat. That. And yeah. this place has had a, uh, this area they kind of um, are stuck, has uh, had a massive problem a few years earlier that ruined mm-hmm. livestock and stuff. But uh, so they, they go camping. Yeah, ergo is what they think um, now may have been the result, like what caused a lot of like the Salem witch trials of like uh, the women acting crazy. They now think that it, it oh, may ergo poison. That. <laughs> that is super interesting. Um, but yeah, they, they, the setup is fun and they, they go camping. They actually had a very similar setup to Coco de Cac or whatever, however you say that one that came Oh, out. Coco D, Coco Da. It did. Yeah, because it's a couple camping who are kind of fighting and then people coming on saying, you can't be on my land. Yep. All of that's the same. Of course, that movie goes in much more of a surreal Real. bonkers kind of band, time yeah. loopy. Um, I think I ended up actually enjoying that one a little more because it's I like more playful. Yeah. yeah, it's um, brutal, but I liked that one. Yeah, but this one, the one thing I really wanted to stress is one of the best performances that we will see this year is the elderly woman in this. Barbara Kingsley so is incredible in this good. one. Like yeah. she just, from start to end, she's fascinating to watch. Mm. And she is uh, complex. I think she was in Lynch's The Straight Story, it looked like for a small role. But anyway, so uh, that alone to me makes it still uh, a must-see when it you know comes out pretty soon. So that is yeah. Honey 
do. And how low budget this was. Like, it feels big. It feels. It felt big to me. I didn't know it was low budget. I didn't. I couldn't tell. I was assuming it was because it's it's mostly outdoor exteriors and one main location, the old woman's house. Yeah, it's basically four cast members through most of it. Yeah, it's a pretty small cast. It 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 doesn't feel small in terms of you Mm -hmm. know kind of style of the piece, but yeah. um, But yeah, no, I think again, some people I think will really take to this one because it's also got a bit of a chainsaw mask kind of bent, so being stuck in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Um, so the other one that I'll talk about continuing on with my Quatermass journey since last uh, time we met for colors, I had watched mm-hmm. Quatermass in the pit. I'm journeying. Back Which number is that one, by the way, the pit? Three. Is that the- Okay, so you started with three. I started with three. All right. right. And I'm completely out of order. Um, So I am now going back 10 years to number two, to Quatermass 2, which is what it's called. It's just Quatermass 2. Um, And this is from 1957. In this one, it's a completely different storyline. There's not a lot of... Much like the kind of Indiana Jones stories, it's much more like a continuation of a character and not oh, anything cool. that's particularly established. Quatermass, and Quatermass is like this Indiana Jones style character where he's like this rogue of science, like, you know, be damned your rigid academia university. I'm going to go do my own thing. And he's like supposed to be kind of wild and crazy. Um, so in this, he is trying to gather information from this um He's, he's trying to gather uh, information for this lunar colonization thing he's trying to get off the ground, where he's trying to create these homes that people can live in on Mars. And instead, he starts um, finding this area, this, this town in the UK, where they have built these massive domes, and these things keep falling from the sky. So like the government, the town, this, this organization has come in and built these massive domes. And at the same time, whatever they are doing there all of this like rock particulates keep falling from the sky and they're big. And when they break open, if you happen to be standing there, when they break open, this gas is emitted that will burn you and it leaves a mark on your skin. And so half the town is like scarred with these marks from being there when these like rock particulates fall and burst. And he keeps trying to get into the facility and like, what are you doing in the big domes? And they keep saying, we're creating synthetic food. And he's like, I don't buy it. Give me a tour of the facility. And then he's touring the facility and he like breaks away. And then um, all of this stuff happens in the town where uh, the particulates break open and they, they hurt a woman. And then the townspeople are like, well, what are we doing at this facility? I don't know. And so then they all kind of rebel against the factory. And the factory owns the town. It's almost like a cult mining town where like the factory owns the town and owns everything in it. And what they discover is that the domes are full of these giant aliens and every rock that falls to earth, the stuff that kind of bursts out of the middle is tiny pieces of the aliens. And that if they put those tiny pieces in the room, they all form this like giant blobby thing. And so each thing that rains down is like a little piece of these giant blobby aliens. Hmm. This one is equally fun. Um, this one is not quite as bonkers as the the third one, uh, Quatermass in the Pit, which is largely considered to be kind of the, the best. That one, it was just thrown in everything where it was like, and they time travel and they're insects and they're aliens and they're Satan um, was in there as well. Hmm. And so it has everything. This one was a very focused science fiction plot, but the aliens were really cool and it was still really fun to see like quitter mass like punching people when they're not listening to his science 
Um, and tune in in two weeks from now to listen to Quarterbacks One. I don't know whether to go to one or four. I got to figure it out. Oh, so, yeah. I want you to go to one and then four, but that's just one me. or four. Yeah. And somebody, um, as I was posting these up on Instagram, somebody was like, "I smell a trivia round." Yeah. Um, yeah. So who knows? No, I really want to watch. I've always wanted to see these, but I had no idea till you start talking about. I, I mean, I was staying away from hearing much, but I didn't realize they were a guy. Like I didn't yeah. realize Cody Demers was a character, and so now I'm even. I know Joe Dante always loved these movies, so I've heard him talk yeah. about them before they're so. a trip so, um, cool. um so yeah Mentor. one or four coming up next okay cool and and we will do later in this month it probably won't be at the start because we're at the start of april we are going to do our 80s top 10 this, this yes. month so and yeah. I, that one's going to be really hard because <laughs> there's a ton of movies so that's what that's one thing on the dock it might not be next episode but it's going to be in the next few um so super fun but yeah we, we wanted to get to our our guest because it's one that we're it's just somebody who we really respect and admire and mm-hmm. uh love their writing and are excited to talk horror with them We are so excited to have um, this guest with us. It's somebody who I think Elric and I have literally been talking about having on um, for several years now, definitely a couple books ago, and she has since published more and has all types of exciting stuff to talk with us about tonight. And that is the amazing Alexandra Hella Nicholas. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, team. Thanks for having me. And this is the beauty of Zoom, by the way, because we, that's why we didn't invite people before, so they don't feel offended. We never actually did. We actually never did um, outside of LA records ever yep. in any of our shows. And now we are fully embracing it, and we are live with Australia. <laughs> yes, this is actually crazy because it is 7 p.m. LA time and 1 p.m. in Melbourne, so we made it work. But yeah, we have talked for years about getting you on, and uh, we decided we're just going to start getting some of our international guests and you have such a crazy lexicon of just amazing books. Um, so we've got a fun game that we're going to play in a sec. But first off, how did you get started writing? Like, what was your first moment where you're just like, I love this film so much, I'm going to write a book about it? Um, I started off as a music journalist, so writing for zines. And uh, I think it says a lot when we think <laughs> in general terms about the gender politics of 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 film that I actually left music writing because I couldn't deal with the dude bros. Mm. Um, I thought, oh no, film looks safe. I'll go there. I'll go there. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Just, I'll start there. It's still, film has still got nothing, got nothing on music. Um, mm. So I started off, you know, it was, I started off um, with a zine that got picked up for newsagent distribution here in Australia with a bunch of friends and it was super fun. And it was basically like a goth zine and, but we called it dark alternative because we, you know, Hmm. (laughs) just make up our own name. Um, And after I did that, I started working for street press and then I uh, went back to uni basically. And I, um, I sort of, I was focusing on English and it's like, yeah, I'm going to do writing and I might take a couple of film classes. And I'd already done a little bit of film reviewing for the zine. Um, but somehow as an undergrad, uh, film studies became my double major and then an honors degree and then a master's degree and then a PhD. And here I am <laughs> like eight, nine books in. What yeah. was your, what was your young film taste? Like, was it something, what did the horror side of it develop or was, were you already a horror fan before you started writing about horror? Well, I'm a biological Catholic, which means I, I don't, I'm not of faith myself. I do have respect for people who do have faith, who don't hurt anybody else and have a good heart. And so I don't dismiss other people's faith. But, um, 
that has given me a certain aesthetic. I think my my Catholic upbringing gave me a very strong, dark um, aesthetic that that's Alice Sweet really Alice stuck with me. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Like- that's your aesthetic, is Alice Sweet Alice? Yellow raincoat. <laughs> that's a documentary, mate. Like, okay, got it. Got <laughs> totally. Um, yeah, so I was I was not allowed to watch M-rated films when I was a kid. I don't have one of those stories. Oh, yeah, I was watching horror films when I was seven. No, I, my mum took me to see um, the Alfred Hitchcock films when they were all re-released mm-hmm. in the cinema, and that was a massive moment for me. And I think I was maybe about 10 years old, and that was huge. That was my big, like, I really like this kind of darker stuff. Mm-hmm. But it was only really during the slumber party circuit that, that I learned to get into horror. And I think for me it, it was particularly forbidden, so there was like a, a double – you know, a, I'm a, uh, Rebecca and I have talked about this elsewhere, but there yeah. was like on one hand it was uh, you're a girl, you're not meant to like the, you know, the booby slasher movies. They're not meant to be for you. But it's like, yeah, but I love them. Yeah, but um, I just want to keep watching them even if like, I love them. I love them. Um, so, yeah, I get that. Oh, my gosh, yeah. So, yeah, I kind of got into it later. And they, I think that that taboo, the double taboo for me um, made them really special. So they, there was already a kind of magnetic allure. So by the time um, – you know, I was sort of a young woman. It was like, yeah, this is where I'm going. <laughs> this is the stuff I want to watch in abundance. For some reason, I, and I, this could be totally off because you're obviously your interests are all over. But when I think of your your taste or some of the movies I've seen you write about, the inter- kind of like me and Becca, the intersection of art and horror where they seem to collide, I often think seems to draw a lot of us in. You know, there, there's something about these two modes. Uh, I, I, movies like Daughters of Darkness or, you know, obviously Suspiria yeah. has elements of this. Um, but and so I, I wondered, is, is that something those types of movies are less the slumber party type movies? Were they ones that you were watching more at like kind of retro houses as you're going through uni and stuff? I was very much a child of the video shop and oh, yeah. my rule was because I'm fussy, I would spend like three hours in there trying to yeah, choose. And I remember at one point, <laughs> it's like, this is not functional. So my film literacy, I literally did it A to Z or Z mm. for, oh, interesting. for my American <laughs> friends. So I, I just watched everything, mm-hmm. yeah. just watched everything. And if I moved house to another area, I would start again and start from scratch and just go from A, oh, to, that's a, great. To, Z, a to Z. <laughs> I've never, I've um, never heard that approach to the video store. That's fun. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I just, you know, ex-boyfriends would get annoyed you, you know what yeah, it's yeah. like it's like why yeah. why can you be how can you be in a video shop for 45 minutes and come home with the mothman prophecies like what's going on <laughs> so yeah that that worked for me and it actually kind of exposed me to a very broad yeah. uh, array of horror but it, it is interesting because the giallo book and i've always wanted to write a book in depth about giallo um didn't actually start off being specifically on the use of art in Jello film. Mm. Um, I, that was always a, the use of painting in horror was a, a completely separate project that I've been obsessed with for God oh, fifteen years. I've done and, so many different trivia rounds on that and everything. Yep, um, I'm obsessed and, with it, and it was only when I sat down and read a bunch of articles that, like individual art, like journal articles and things that I'd written on individual jello films that i realized uh you know it's the stenthal syndrome uh yeah. it's the house with laughing windows it's deep yeah. red, like the ones that draw me um you know uh P- perfume of the lady in black um oh gosh so many like I guess the laughing uh, woman has the uh, or the um no it's not this exactly is the, the frightened exactly. woman yeah has the legs yeah. and the, the installation art and, Which, yeah. oh exactly and, and that's yeah. yeah and that's based on like a really famous feminist sculpture mm. yeah um you know so i mean uh Lucio Fulci's uh, The Psychic has got all this Vermeer in it. Yeah. And I realised that all the films, all the Jalo that I was writing about were all about art. So those two yeah. projects sort of got smooshed together. <laughs> so have you, because yeah. I've talked about this and no one I know has actually seen it. Have you seen the movie Animorph? 
It's a Willem Dafoe film where he is hunting a serial. That is the most amazing film. I'm great. No one will see it. I haven't seen it. Can I I swear on your podcast? Oh my fuck yes! Fucking hell! That is the one with all the Francis Bacon stuff, right? Right? That is. No one will fucking see it that I recommend it to. You and I, we 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 both write. I know you're in a right. We need to because I've put in so many book pack chapter like abstracts and stuff for that film and people are like, huh? And I'm like, You're, I have you don't know anything. So <laughs> many. Whenever I have to do this, like top 10 movies you should see, it is always on there. And then I'm like, you guys have seen Animorph. No one has seen it. Um, Just for the listeners at home, I feel bad for all of you because you can't see the level. <laughs> if you have a question, can women be horror fans? Let me just tell you what I just witnessed. I witnessed the geekiest moment I'll probably ever see live in my life. It's what we call nerd nerdgasms. <laughs> it totally was. It's a beautiful thing. Um, she's the first person I've ever met who has seen it. And I feel it is just so beautifully done. And I learned art techniques that I never even knew about. The idea of the perspective, sculptures. Um, and everything and what those are technically called and the blood that travels and even the, the tattoos on the back and how it's all perspective based. It is so cool. Um, and and it's, know, the- it's a neo-noir and that makes it even more cool. So yeah, it's, it's, it's formally perfect. It has one of the most technically exquisite final shots I think I've ever mm-hmm. seen in a film, just in terms of how the image is put together. And it's mm-hmm. genuinely chilling. The funny thing is that I only saw it because it was an A film. <laughs> it was, so, yeah, I remember I think I'd moved house and there was a new video shop and, and I think it was DVD at this point. But it was like, okay, yeah. I'll start with A. A is for Animorph. <laughs> I guess I know what I'm watching for next week because you guys just, you couldn't harder sell it. So I'm in. So it's the plight here with it in the United States. This came out, I want to say like 2007. It was definitely coming off of like the mid-2000s torture porn binge. Because it's got notes of torture porn to it, but it's it's like an Angel Hardy detective thriller through and through. Mm. Um, but we had a cartoon here at the exact same time called Animorphs. And so anytime you even remotely talked about it, a bunch of people would go, the kids show where the kids turn into animals? Because it was a real popular cartoon. And I guarantee that at home right now, half of our audience just went, are they talking about the kids cartoon? <laughs> um, so it definitely struggled because of that here. But that said, Really cool. Um, so sorry, had to break in with that. <laughs> I'm glad you did. Art and horror. I was like, oh god, she's seen it. She's seen it. So well, we'll we, and we'll come down. We'll get to the giallo. Giallo. I better say it correctly because people always get on our face when we say it. Uh, giallo. Giallo. Um, <laughs> but no, that's something that me and you know me, me and Becca have spent a lot of time this year trying to find like deep cut ones that we hadn't hadn't seen before. And just mm. it's kind of the gift that keeps giving. You can keep going in and oh, suddenly a couple more from Venice. All right. Let's see what they are. And I find every year I'm seeing two or three that I just hadn't even heard of, um, surprisingly. So I, I'm excited. We haven't seen that book. Like we, we as in Beck and I haven't seen that one yet. So we're, that's probably the thing I'll be most looking forward to that you've put out so far. Cause it just, there isn't a lot of uh, literature on Jalo either, really. Mm-hmm. A woman called Alexia Canis, <clears throat> sorry, Alexia Canis, who's actually it lives in the same city as I do. She's just put mm. out a book on Jalo, um, so cool. which is incredible. And she wrote a book for the cultography series that I did my um, book on Ms. 45. She did one on Deep Red. Okay, um, yeah, that's right. So I got she, that to you. Yeah, she's definitely somebody to look out for. Um, okay. Her, her new book, and I think it, it only came out in the last month or two, so I don't think it's quite got the traction yet, but that's highly recommended. 
Okay. Yeah, and all, all the so what we're gonna well, I'll just kind of tell people what we're gonna do as a way of, rather than just doing a deep dive on one thing while you're here. I thought it'd be super fun because there each one is kind of a subgenre, and and also within that, a take your specific take uh, on that subject. So I thought we'd you know kick each one around with you. Uh, you kind of t- talking about you know the inspiration for it in your take, and then we'd have you you know recommend a film from that subgenre that maybe uh, you know you came across while you're doing it, or one that you feel excited about recommending. And we'll throw in quick recommendations yeah. ourselves as we go. Um, and just so people understand, the two books that we uh, well, two of the ones we're not talking about up top are, is actually how I discovered your writing. One was the Suspiria. What what was that other series called? The uh, oh, that's Devil's of, Advocate from Devil's Advocate. books in the UK. Yeah. And was Miss 45 one of those two? No, that was with Cultographies. With Cultography, Columbia, Univers- yeah. Columbia University Press. And I did a book on The Hitcher for oh, our friends oh. at Arrow. Nice. Oh, okay, okay. I knew you did something for the Blu-ray. I didn't realize it was a book for it. Okay, I, and that's one of my favorite movies. Um, okay, so those are fantastic if you're looking for a good entry point because sometimes those are nice, like they're super small and you get a sense for how the person thinks. Yeah, so, the Miss 45. But, well, I mean, Auric knows what a huge fan I am of yeah, that movie, um, wh- but which would take us straight into Rape Revenge, um, which I'm excited to talk to you about because Rape Revenge, out of all of your books, this one, I'm questioning if it was kind of the hardest one to approach because as females, and we talked about, you know, the, we're not supposed to be watching the boobies. These aren't made for us. I've always been asked repeatedly, how do you watch rape revenge films and kind of qualify them? How do you make them something that you can be like, here's the justification for why I'm watching this? Or how do you even, you know, say I am enjoying Ms. 45? Um, knowing that you're watching violence against women for the entire movie. And then she gets her comeuppance at like 10 minutes at the end with a really cool song um, as it should be. <laughs> so how, how did you approach that one? You know, I talk about this both in the uh, the introduction for Ms. 45 and the introduction very in depth, actually, in the new, uh, the second edition um, of my Rape Revenge book, my first book. Mm-hmm. So the, the second edition marks the 10th anniversary and I've, Rework that quite substantially, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that later, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very much introduced to rape revenge in the group house circuit, sort of share living mm-hmm. circuit. And it was almost like a dare from my male housemates, lovely people, but I remember it vividly. It's like, can you watch Faces of Death? Can you watch Executions? Can you watch Miss 45? Mm-hmm. And it was almost to see, are you tough enough? Mm-hmm. And um, sort of not a trial by fire, but like, are you tough enough? Like you say you're into cinema, are you really into cinema? So it was almost like a dare, like a gendered dare. And then years later I saw, uh, I started a a film with um, a man who would be my master's supervisor um, and he taught Miss 45. And it was really interesting to me that my two major encounters with that film were both framed by men. And um, there's a negative way to look at that, but there's also, um, I'm really grateful to them. Um, because I don't know whether I would have watched those films if it wasn't for, you know, I don't think I would have watched the film perhaps if it wasn't for those scenarios. Mm -hmm. Um, What I have learned very deeply, and again, I talk about this at length elsewhere, so I'm not going to dwell on it now, but um, BJ Colangelo writes a beautiful article and I do think it's beautiful. Uh, She wrote one of the most, she wrote one of the most important things I think I've ever read about rape revenge film where she talks as a survivor about the catharsis of rape Mm -hmm. revenge. And she talked about that on one of our old shockwave shows. Yeah. Yeah. And over and over and over and over and over again, I cannot tell you uh, when I go to film festivals, when I give lectures on this subject, every time I will have people come up to me almost asking for permission. And you know, like, is it cool? Is it, you know, is it okay? Often these people are survivors. And I think what's really interesting is that it's not just women. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, I, I've had men who are survivors of sexual assault 
who find genuine catharsis in these films. And I've, I, I've made a, you know, I'm not BJ. I don't, I don't have the guts that she does. So my own personal stuff is not something I'm kind of hugely comfortable yet going on the record with. Yeah, same here. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm kind of fine with that and I think other people are fine with that. But I think, um, I mean, and the other thing that, that I talk about a lot in, in the new edition of the Rape Revenge book is that there's an assumption that these films are all made by men uh, and that none of nobody who's a survivor of sexual assault or rape has ever made a rape revenge film, and neither of those things are true. Mm-hmm. And I think when we start expanding our horizons critically and actually looking at rape revenge, you know, Violation um, is an amazing film in and of itself. But I think oh, the, the new one, that, yeah, 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 I watched yeah, it this like, week. Yeah, the fact oh. that its filmmakers are very open about their own experiences as survivors, I think, is really important. I think that's a conversation that has long, long, long been needed to, to be had. Mm-hmm. interesting yeah no and it's also like what the interesting part with this sometimes is also what is your entry point like what is the film you saw for it? i mean for me weirdly enough the first movie of this kind and one of the first kind of violent movies i saw what about 10 or so was deliverance and obviously that's a very different formula you know overall because of what's happening and it's not as it's not one person it's a group dynamic and a lot of reasons but also as a young boy to see a man a full-grown man in that position um was very i think um educational in a way i think you know i've often kind of thought i wonder if you played irreversible to high school students if you know some of these sexual assaults would actually decrease because you can't you can't sexualize it you can't get off on it it's it's there to provoke it's there to illustrate you know um the destruction of nature so so i think there is a place for these outside of the fetishized you know um even as horror objects fetishized horror you know like oh dares and the dark thing over here so i think it's just a shame in some ways it's kept this especially this except till recently like things like revenge that kind of bring a new pop, almost a pop looking neon sensibility to it yeah yeah i think it's really interesting to think about rape revenge we we automatically default and i do this in my book i, I have a chapter called the rape revenge canon where i divide it into the exploitation canon and the mainstream canon mm. Um, and you know, we have, I mean, Igmar Bergman's The Virgin Spring yeah. is a rape yeah. revenge film, yeah. right? Famously, you know, uh, inspired Last House, yeah. Last House as every horror fan worth their salt will know. <laughs> but I do think that there's an argument to be made that we can just as easily split horror, uh, split rape revenge films, sorry, into, um, films that are justice fantasies and films that critique justice fantasies. And what is so useful with that distinction is that it completely collapses the mainstream uh, exploitation binary. So what we find is that we have on the justice fantasy side, we have films like I Spit on Your Grave and The Accused, mm-hmm. the Oscar winning The Accused with the Oscar winning Jodie Foster. Yeah. Yep. And on the other hand, films that critique the rape fantasy, we have films like Violation, we have films like Miss 45. And I think it's a really interesting distinction. Um, yeah. And in a way, I think it's just, it's probably more fruitful than looking at it as exploitation versus mainstream, which as I said, I'm more than guilty of. I dedicated a whole chapter to that. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, I also, and there's also that difference between, and something that I noticed in Promising Young Woman that I thought was super interesting was the idea of the person who's doing it for somebody else. It didn't actually happen mm. to the central character. So the revenge they're carrying out is for someone else. And I, obviously, Irreversible is about a revenge being carried out for someone. Uh, Virgin Spring is a revenge, not by, whereas I spit on your grave, she's doing it. And I think yeah. there's quite a big difference between the way those types of films feel in that. There's been some. Great stuff written about that. There's a woman called Sarah Prajansky who wrote a book called Watching mm-hmm. Rape, which I would, mm. if you've got any interest in this subject at all, I would consider it pretty essential. Um, and she she makes that distinction very clear. Mm, I think yeah. the book is about 2001 and she calls it the agent model. 
um, versus the kind of individual model where, you know, are you an agent acting on somebody's behalf? Yeah. Um, and, and you get some really interesting films. There's an amazing, amazing TV movie called No One Could Protect Her with Joanna Kearns from, who was the mum, I think, in Growing Pains. Oh, okay. Um, wow. and it's I, really interesting rape revenge films pop up in really, don't even get me started on the film adaptation of Coward of the County by Kenny Rogers. Don't even get me started on that. <laughs> Um, so let me ask you about Kenny Rogers because you <laughs> can't just throw Rogers. it around. <laughs> I know. There's a film. It's on YouTube. You can watch it. It's a rape oh, revenge film. And it's uh, it's just, I mean, sorry, I'm totally digressing here with Kenny Rogers. <laughs> it's okay. It's fascinating. It's and as we go through each, I'm always curious, like, um, I guess, you know, because we're all learning. That's the fun thing about anyone who teaches or writes books. You're always learning yourself, you know, through the research. But was there... Mm-hmm. Did things shift? Was there anything particular that shifted through the research in the way you viewed the films, or you know, just your personal feelings towards these films, or is, or or did you already know quite a lot before you kind of uh, went down the path? Um, I guess there's that, that sort of it's like a two pronged answer. So the the original book was um, expanded, I guess, from my master's thesis because I had a background in freelance writing, mm-hmm. and I slaved my guts out writing this master's thesis, and the e- it was just ego. It was like only two people, oh, you know, my, my, my supervisors read it and the, my markers read it. And mm. it's like, no, 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 no. This is, I don't write for, I don't write two for people. people, please. God, I wish I could um, do that. That is so much smarter though. And now when my <laughs> students, any of my students who are going into their dissertation or God help them, their dissertation, every single time I'm always like, yeah, think of something that you can use later. Cause my dissertation is a 250 page thing that took up six years of my life that I can't repurpose anywhere because it is so academic. Like it has, and it's so niche and it's all on grindhouse marketing and it has no culpability today. And I'm just, I, I don't know what to do with it. It's sitting on my shelf right now. It looks cool. It's got a nice little gold bind and yeah, that's it. And- yeah, no, it was, it was kind of fortunate in a way, I think in that I, I had that like, I mean, the, the one crit- criticism that I always get in academia is that my writing's too journalistic. Like, mm. you, I got you know, your voice. It's what happened. enough. <laughs> yeah, because I was at Fangoria. In other words, it's readable. Six years, yeah. And I always get, well, if you're not using words like panopticon, are you even academic? And, ugh. So, yeah. Don't even get me started. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, my feeling, I made a very conscious point when I got my master's results back um, and I was really happy with it. And it was like, I made a very conscious, I don't even know if it was a decision or a, if it was a realization where it was, I would rather talk to 15 year old boys about this stuff than 50 year old academics. And that's no slight on, on 50 year old. Oh academics. God bless you. But I don't, I don't want to scream into the <laughs> echo chamber where people, yeah. I don't want to be, I don't want to be citable. I want to actually have a conversation and this really carries through to um, to the recently revised edition where I really dive much more deeply into that about the journey that I've been on in that 10 years where I've really, you know, I thought that that book was, you know, um, you know publish or perish, you know, I'm going to have this dazzling academic career and then I realised that what people in academia wanted to talk about when they when it came to rape revenge was genre theory. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I, good, good for you and you know, good on you. Like, I, I, I don't have disrespect for that, but I want to talk to people about their experiences and, um, and what these films mean to them. And that's, you know, I found my people. You know, I found mm-hmm. them on um, in film collectives like Cinemaniacs here in Melbourne. Um, you know, just through uh, film festival programmers and and just you know, overseas. You know, just just going to festivals overseas, and that's where I was having 
the real conversations that I wanted to have. And that's where I met, that's where I had conversations with, with rape survivors who were like, is it weird that I really like these films? You know, is it okay if I like these films? Mm -hmm. And that to me is worth everything. And talking to filmmakers who are survivors or even ones who aren't, you know, people, you know, people who just have a genuine interest. Yes, some of these films are absolutely exploitation. And that's the big argument of all of my work on rape revenge is that like, like rape in general, I think, um, from a social perspective, we have contradictory and conflicting attitudes all the time, Mm -hmm. all the time. And that con- that contra- those contradictions are so visible in rape revenge films. Mm. So it's not a case of saying rape revenge films are progressive or regressive or they're feminist or not feminist because they're so different. They're yep. so diverse. You just can't make that call. Absolutely, there is some offensive garbage there, made with the intent, made with the conscious intent of being offensive garbage. Oh yeah, like. I know I'm the last person that would argue that, that you know I mean that that's just true and I can reckon I can list films maybe I won't but um they're not the ones that I'm interested in talking about but Dario Argento's Stenthal Syndrome yeah. was the breakthrough film for me that oh, was the okay, one, that's one yeah interesting you know and again it ties into art right that's um that's yeah. been called a giallo a giallo rape revenge film mm-hmm. and it's all about art it's all about art history and it's all about the representation of rape and rape trauma and it's it's an absolute masterpiece. But, I, I, you know, Argento, I wrote a book on Suspiria. I love Argento. But his representations of sexual violence have not always been so progressive. No. Even the same director can have contradictory, you right. know, we, yeah. it doesn't have to be woke or not woke. You know, it doesn't have to be one or the other. I think in, in the contradictions and the tensions, that's where the interesting stuff is. Well, and then it's in the reception that you can't control. You know, the artist can put it out there, but one person's catharsis is somebody else's exploitation. And it becomes, that's, I think, what keeps all of us interested in these films. And I think it works in reverse as well with one person's exploitation can be another person's catharsis. Because I don't think Ilsa was made to make women feel powerful, but I watch that shit and I'm like, oh, fuck yeah. Um, <laughs> so there's, I think it, it definitely, I, I question, you know, Abel Ferreira behind Miss 45. Zoe Lund. Maybe, um, but Abel Ferreira probably not there. Going, let's say something about the ladies. So yeah, and um, he look he he changed his. Um, it's so I, I mean I love reading his interviews so much. Yeah. If you read what he was saying when that film came out compared to when it had the 2013 re-release, very different stuff. Oh yeah, very very different stuff. And I'm not saying oh he's a liar or anything like that. I think he just sat on it for a couple of decades and realized what it was that mm-hmm. that Zoe Tamalis brought to that film. Yeah. I mean, it was like, because she, there's no script, like she had no, she had no dialogue. So it was like a five page treatment or something. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all her. And he knew it. Like, I mean, he, he directed an amazing film, but if it was anybody but her, that film would not be what it is. Yeah. So Elric knows I kind of like, um, stalked her, her path when I lived in New York city. Um, I did the same when I moved to LA for Maya Darren. Um, but it was immediately I found where her old apartment used to be. She used to breed rats. And I, I was going to ask you, did you, know, did you find the rat house? <laughs> I did find the rat house. And I found people who um, say that they're rats, that they breed rats, because it's a whole thing in New York City is breeding the rats and mm. um, these very specific, like, you know, the markings and these specific ones. And everything. And I just really followed her path. And um, she still and and watched all of her videos, which has somehow made their way to YouTube of her being a heroin advocate, um, which didn't play out so well. But yeah, and and just yeah, I'm still just so like girl crush enamor and just completely devastated. We'll save that for three books from now. 
Because <laughs> your girl crushes can, will come back up. Um, yes. So, uh, so Becca, before we move on from here, so uh, Stendhal, we're going to take as your wreck here, uh, right, Alex? You, you'd say? Yeah, Stendhal syndrome is really where it all began for me mm-hmm. as a critical interest. Yeah. Um, I feel and, deeply yeah. passionate about that film. And I'm also really interested in, in anti-rape revenge films, mm-hmm. um, in films that aggressively reject the premise um, that, you know, you kind of can't talk about them um, without talking about rape revenge in that they're not rape revenge. So here I'm thinking about uh, Isabel Eckloff's Holiday. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I saw that a couple of years ago. That was a, a miracle of a film. But, you yeah. know, she the, that director was so determined. She hates rape revenge films. And she was like, I am not going to make that film. And I think it's such a, an amazing reply. It's such an amazing. And look, Vera Chitlova, um, I have to give this film a shout out. Vera Chitlova, of course, did Daisies, Daisies the great yeah. proto punk 1966 Czech mm-hmm. film, queen of the Czech New Wave. Yeah. She made a rape revenge film. A, a, oh. a, a, sorry, a rape revenge comedy if mm. I can be clear, in 1999 called Traps. Um, oh. I think it's our um, second run released on DVD years and years ago. Move heaven and earth to get a copy of that. It's mm. so interesting. Cool. Yeah, no, I don't know about that one. So that's post all the Czech New Wave stuff. She's way way out of that by then. Wow. She was still like a really key figure in the, in the national cinema. But, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it's very much a Chitlova film. And I'm sorry I'm pronouncing her name incorrectly. You guys are going to get emails like, why did she That's say okay. it with that thick Australian we accent? She murdered the enough. Queen's name. We do it all the time. We just kind of have to let it go yeah. or else we couldn't talk about anybody. So yeah. I'm Australian. I can barely get my own name right. Look. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we'll just – we won't go as a deep – do you uh, have one you want to wreck while we're on the topic, Becca? Yeah, actually, um, I was going to go 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 Second Time Virgin, um, mm. which is Koji Watsumatsu. Um, and that is one where somebody else is doing the attack as revenge for the rape. But the one I'm actually going to go with, that was that was a pull. Oh, that was um, sneaky. That, that was, was really sneaky. sneaky. Yeah, yeah, working in two is actually, and I'm fascinated with this film, and it's another one where very few people have seen, so I don't get to talk about it much, but I will anytime I can. Freeze Me. And Freeze uh, Me. Japanese seen film? it. Hell yes! So I just, I literally just threw, I threw out the goats, like my little nana, my little atrophied fingers. I don't think I've thrown up the goats in about (laughs) twenty years. That film um, is a minor miracle, right? Incredible. Yeah. So freeze me. He's an incredible filmmaker. He's done a couple of rape revenge films. Yeah, so he specializes, and these films get so disregarded as just being pinky violence stuff. Um, he's done a lot of the Angel Guts Red Porno collection. I'm getting real, like, deep cut, like, Japanese, like, torture porny, pinky violence stuff here. Um, but, yeah, he's done, and these are largely disregarded as kind of, you know, the, the Japanese equivalent of sex and horror exploitation. But and I've seen so, most of them actually. Um, that that the Angel Guts Red Porno series. Um, I've seen, but these there's something so special about this one. The setup is this woman who is um very kind of systematically raped by these five individuals, and she gets up and kind of you know deals with the trauma and doesn't talk about it and goes on with her life. And then she realizes that like two years later they plan to do it again. Hmm. and where it goes from there. And it's a rape revenge film, but there is something so classy about this Pinky Violets movie. And there's something, she's freezing them, um, which is where the title comes from. And there is something so sophisticated about how she's examining their preserved bodies. And it just, it's doing something. It's doing, hmm. and I, I would have to like really struggle to unpack exactly what it's doing, but this is still one that I watch and I go, 
there is something here that is elevating rape revenge films. And I don't even know if the director intended to do it. It's one of those where I'm like, maybe it was a happy accident, but yeah, it's, there's a great, um, there's a really great article on Freeze Me on Senses of Cinema, the film journal Senses of Cinema. Really? I love Senses of Cinema. Yeah. That's an, I was an is- editor at Senses of Cinema. Oh <laughs> actually, that's probably the first place I, I yeah, saw yeah. your name, actually, because it's um, who's who was the main editor? What's his, uh, Adrian Martin? Was that who it was back no. in the day? Oh. Uh, I don't, I think he published there. Oh, he published um, there. Okay, yeah. Yeah, Rolando Caputo um, okay. back in the old days. Michelle I used to do those top tens every yeah. year. I used to always yeah, submit yeah, them, right? Top still ten going. back in the day. Yeah, yeah. Oh, connect. Um, We've connected that, like in the you know two thousands, where we weren't finding a huge amount of books being published outside of like the um the, the what were they called the the creation books mm-hmm. um that we were all about some senses of cinema because it was talking yeah. about films like freeze me in an academic and artistic light when we weren't necessarily finding that in a lot of other places so yeah well i just heard you guys use the word classy and sophisticated which explains my pick savage streets by danny steinman Um, when we talk sophisticated linda blair with a crossbow and punk hair taking out all the guys who had the most probably one of the to me one of the nastier rape scenes of Mm -hmm. with um the lovely linnea quigley who i think is handicapped in it and then they and us i think their friend dies but it's also one of those films a yes you need a shower afterwards it's a pretty it's a pretty slimy film but it's also strangely entertaining and like that dumb punk um guys and dolls almost vibe that it has and danny steinman in general you know he makes i'd say fairly unpleasant movies his friday 13th 5 is easily the most unpleasant of that series you know but there's something there is something also fun and interesting and kind of you know seeing linda blair in that state is somehow liberating for me so i'm throwing savage streets in the mix i can't also quite an compete amazing with soundtrack an <laughs> yes, amazing yes. soundtrack um, okay, well, let's move to, and uh, we'll kind of circle back at the end just to, just so you can at least tell us, you know, about the update, because I think that is what will probably tip that book into being super relevant for a lot of people yeah. now. Um, so n- the second book you wrote, um, is one that we, you know, we talk about these movies all the time and they come in and out of favor. Uh, found footage, horror films, fear and the appearance of reality is the title from 2014. I um I love this book and it's been really interesting because it sort of was a little bit out of vogue for a while, you know, because found footage was considered to be a fad. But I think lately there's been a real resurgence in interest. Um, mm. You know, there's a documentary coming out that I was interviewed for called The Found Footage Phenomena. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're just, I just, I just love these films. So this ironically started off as my, my first PhD uh, that didn't get completed and, you know, mm. life gets in the way. Um, I, I lost a baby and then uh, I had a baby and um, I, you know, I decided to just do it as a book. I think, you know, like I'd done the first book and it's like actually this is not a PhD, this is a book. So I was secretly more interested in the prehistory, so going back to the Orson Welles War of the Worlds radio broadcast, which to this day chills me to the bone. If you've mm. not heard it, it's on YouTube it's incredible. Um, the, what he does in that radio broadcast is actually not that different to the way that found footage horror works now and that there's glitches and the sound drops out and it's terrifying. But I was also really interested in the legacy and the influence of the um, kind of 50s and 60s highway road safety films, you know, mm-hmm. those really dinky little educational films that pff, suddenly you have these like intense, like real life gore shots Um I think that they have a really strong legacy and snuff fictions from, you know, things like, um, you know, hardcore and eight millimeter, all of that stuff. I think that they're all precursors. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I saw that in America. your, 
Yeah, so I noticed that in the um, uh, you know, the index, some of the topics, and I was like, oh, that's really interesting to take it back to some of the things like safety films and snuff films, and the idea, you know, obviously, Cannibal Holocaust is essentially yep. you know the snuff film that we're um, seeing the origins for, right? Um, and if you've never seen the, it's my favorite extra on any disc. It's um, one of the actors from Cannibal Holocaust talking about how when he was being flown there because of the kind of contract they signed he he had a moment where he actually thought that's what he was in for he was gonna and he die. wasn't joking he was in a yeah. boat going i saw some blood coming down the water and we did we signed a thing saying we had to disappear for a year after the movie was shot and so it, it's pretty and you just realize what would that have felt like you know, to, <laughs> to enter into that uh, kind of world but yeah no this so I'm, I'm really interested when were you what were you, like in terms of discovering found footage films was it like everyone else was it around blair witch for you that- yeah so i i grew up with the uh, my dad had the orson wells of the worlds on uh on vinyl and i used to play it as a kid just to give myself the the, the howling phantods you know the he- heebie-jeebies mm. um and it was always a thing that it was like okay this can never be done again mm. and i it was the middle of summer when so this is it was such an interesting time with the internet because um blair which came out in the u.s long before it came out in australia so i saw it on like a um, a bootleg video to start with, but it was so grainy and weird. I just, it was like, I, this is just weird. So I saw it at the cinema in the middle of summer and I had a fight with my boyfriend and we went in just to get the air conditioning hmm. and it absolutely blew me away. And it was that thing. It's like, I was wrong and I've never been so happy to be wrong. It was hmm. that thing, you know, nobody can do what Orson Welles did. These, this team have done what Orson Welles did. So I, and I still think I, you know, I mean, I have, um, I'm, I have such complicated feelings about Blair Witch because I think there's some really interesting things that it says about women's filmmaking um, that I, I don't know how I feel about. And I don't mean that in a dismissive way, but I think it's really complicated. Yeah. But it just is one of the scariest films I've ever seen. To this day, I can't watch the last 10 minutes of that film and not have a really visceral reaction. I think it's just terrifying. Perhaps it's generational. Um but it just, I absolutely shat the blanket when I saw that film. Yeah. And um, from then on in, I think I think found footage, because it's so sensory, yeah. it really deals with, you know, it's, it's a sensory experience. And so whether you like them or not kind of transcends your intellect and it transcends nar- narrative. You either have like a bodily connection with these films or you don't. And, and for people who do, it's like we don't even need to talk about it. And for people who don't, it's like, you know, no, I, I get it. Like if you don't connect with them. That's like, I, I totally understand why. But for me, there's so many found footage horror films that if they were told in a more straightforward, traditional narrative, I probably wouldn't be that interested. But something about that format. Yeah, the first just, person camera. Yeah, it's like yeah. it's locked, like jacked into my brainstem. Yeah. Like it's no, like- I think that's much scarier. I don't think there's many modern horror films. It's not very easy, especially adults. It's not that easy, I think, to scare adults um, at a certain point. But found footage has always worked because uh, you really are limited to what you can see. And it can come from anywhere. It's, it's, we're so used to film grammar now that we know when we're coming into a scare in a normal movie. In a James Wan film, we can sense it. Sometimes they work really well still. But with found footage, there is it's like all bets are off. You know, Obviously, it runs its course with certain... Uh, you know, certain ones at a certain point where you do start to anticipate, but it, it really does. It's still a very effective way to, you know, disturb. And what I love about found footage is that it keeps regenerating every time mm. there's a new kind of technology. So, you know, it, the, you know, the rough history goes that, you know, uh, we had Blair Witch Project and then we had 9-11 and we had a bunch of torture porn films. Um, but it, so it wasn't really until around 2007 that we started getting the new kind of that second wave of found footage yep. horror films. There were ones in the middle, of course, but they weren't huge. You know, we didn't have Cloverfield or Paranormal Activity. Um, and I think Google buying YouTube in what, 2005, like amateur video footage just became so familiar. 
yes. on, on a mass scale. And that changed everything. And so YouTube, I mean, I think, you know, at one point there I was thinking, well, nobody can do what Orson Welles did again, but then Blair Witch came along, but nobody can do what Blair Witch did. And then Marble Hornets came along on YouTube. And I can't even describe how obsessed I was and still am with Marble Hornets. I think it's a masterpiece. This is by a bunch of kids. They made the first series for 500 bucks. And mm, to this I day, don't know it. I got to see it. It's, look, it's where um, it's, it's really sad, actually. A lot of the um, it's really where the, the Slender Man oh, mm-hmm. right. mythology really escalated from. And they, I think that they got really burnt by um, the, the Slender Man related stabbings, which are yeah. horrendous. Um, and clearly they have no responsibility for that you know but of these course. were really young you know total it total punk rock low budget um uh, forgive me my, my knowledge of american geography is not good but they're from arkansas Alabama, arkansas, arkansas somewhere starting with an a and like it's look mid south i can't recommend it more mm. i can't recommend it more strongly because it tapped into this new technology like you go through the old comments on of marble hornets on mm-hmm. youtube and it's people saying is this real and yeah. it's like, oh, we went through this with Blair Witch. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. And and host. I mean, host, you know, we've had other kind of interface horror films, um, you know, going right back to the Collingswood story, which I think is about 2000, which is on uh, an interface horror film, which I think was ICQ. Am I remembering? Oh, my God. I remember ICQ. Yeah. So there's an ICQ horror film from around 2000 that's a great, really strong film and doesn't get the credit that it deserves. And, of course, you know, we have Unfriended. Um, Nacho Vigolondo did the extraordinary open windows. You know, there have been so many since. Um, and I'm seeing, ho- I keep seeing requests for those. Like when I'm seeing the the boards where like uh, different production companies are looking for specific yep. things. Um, films that are set entirely on desktop, I see popping up a lot of requests for those. So clearly it's something that people want to continue with. Like how do you make the desktop hard film? It's really interesting to me yeah. because the found footage taps into changes in technology mm-hmm. much more than other kinds of horror subgenres because it feeds on those changes um, and our, you know, kind of tech shock. There's a yeah. wonderful book called Haunted Media by a guy called Jeffrey Sconce where he talks about precisely this, that there's, you know, the way that, that technology, that we understand new technology through this kind of supernatural metaphor. Um, so films like Host just tap directly into that. Oh, yeah. You know, it's so hard to watch Host and not have a visceral. I mean, I kept moving, you know, who didn't, right? Who kept reaching for the mouse when you were watching mm-hmm. Host? <laughs> and, and, and it does actually, it does a couple things that we have problems with found footage. One is trying to be a traditional length movie, I think, is unnecessary for found footage films. So it's one of the first that I think embraced that and said, you know, fuck it, we'll be 65, 70 minutes, perfect length for that movie if it had been 90 minutes it would you have to pad it with things that i think a lot of found footage films struggle with padding answering either the who's on the camera right or keep filming that issue that comes up just like slashers have the scooby-doo ending issue right everything has its issue but i think if you just say you know what we don't need that and that's one of the reasons i think the vhs films um are mixed bags each one obviously but within each they have some of the best i I think a couple of the best films ever made live inside a couple of those vhs films you know safe haven just just the feeling of safe haven as a film it's perfect on its own i don't want the rest <laughs> just give me safe haven as a 45 minute experience or whatever it is and so i think i think found footage more than anything might start to, i could see it start to change that the next iteration w- won't matter the length it's going to be directly deposited to your computer or tv anyway so what's tiktok know. i mean this stuff is yeah. flourishing on tiktok oh my yeah. gosh yeah where all the radical experimental filmmaking is happening right now and i do not say that with a skerrick of irony yeah, no, sure. TikTok horror is so huge right now. Like I am 
on TikTok. I do not post anything. I am just there to watch um, the horror that I see and and cat videos, um, so- but mostly the horror. <laughs> and it is, yeah, it is just amazing. I feel like such a lurker, but it is it is too good to pass up. Now, do you have a, a recommendation that could be from Australia to recommend here? Um, no, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm, de- I'm definitely plugging for a certain Australian film, but I'm not sure if it's going to get. We've talked about that a lot on the show. Okay, I t- you know, I just, um, I just did a commentary um, with uh, my wonderful colleague Emma Westwood for the second site. Blu-ray release of Lake Mungo. I had no idea what you're talking about. Lake Mungo. Okay, interesting. Let's talk about <laughs> There's a film called Lake Mungo. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, we could do the whole podcast about that I film. I feel oh my God, yeah. deeply passionate about that yeah, movie. Becca loves that one too. And, she made me watch yeah. it back in the day. So. And, mm-hmm. I mean, it's so deeply tied to something in Australian horror about a repressed colonial guilt. Mm. So the actual space of Lake Mungo, the film's set in Ararat. Like, the, you know, there's a key action that takes place at Lake Mungo, but without going too, too deeply into Australian history, Lake Mungo is a really significant place um, for, you know, for First Nations Australians. Um, yeah. the, 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 the repressed in that film, the, the histories that are repressed in that film, it's a minor miracle. Um, I, you know, things like um, Poughkeepsie tapes, like mm-hmm. Blair Witch. But for me, I, I really would recommend if people who have yet to discover um, Marble Hornets on YouTube, it's there's three series. Um, it's just extraordinary, and it's punk rock filmmaking. They had no money, and they went for it. And what they did was incredible. Cool. Yeah. No, that one I hadn't even heard of. Uh, Becca, yeah. do you have a, a wreck you want to throw out here? Well, I end up. I've discovered looking over them that I talk about found footage films and championing quite them <laughs> a, quite a lot, which is yeah. weird because I never consider it to be one of my more popular subgenres. But when I was like, oh, I'll talk about. Um, uh, you know, this particular film, or I'll talk about Lake Mungo, or I'll talk about, um, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, I remember we championed taking of LLC Deborah Logan a lot yeah. when it came out. I remember I that was that pretty film. quiet when it came out. No one was so, like in our circle. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to pull one that I hadn't really said much about before, or even a um, man bites dog is one that I've ended up talking about a lot. Um, so I'm going to go with one from 2014 that I don't think I've said much on the show, but it's one that I, I just, genuinely loved when I saw it. And that's Digging Up the Marrow, um, which is Adam Green's movie. Like, honestly, I considered this to be one of the the best Adam Green films. Um, It is a documentary team that is exploring monster art, but they end up um, finding this supposed place where people go when they feel that they don't fit in, when they feel like they are monsters. And it's underground and a man who is trying to dig his way there to find his missing son. And I, when I saw this, I saw this um, opening night in the theater. It was just such an endearing, heartfelt film, and it did not get nearly enough love. Um, so that is, and it had really cool effects too. So that's I don't think I knew it was a found footage film. I, I haven't seen it, so I thought it was just like I knew it was a faux documentary. I didn't know. It feels unlike it anything else okay. Adam Green has done, and I, lo- I mean, like I love Frozen. Um, the hatchet films, they weren't for me. Um, but that's just cause I don't necessarily love my slashers quite in that way. I know people absolutely love those. Um, but this one hit me and I was like, there is something really heartfelt in this movie. So yeah, digging cool. up the marrow. Okay, well, I think yeah, and I'm I'm I have now I want to read this one because I do. There's a lot about it. I'm interested in how it's working on us. That the spell it's using. I mean, I understand the camera side, but there's a lot I still need to know. So uh, I will be looking at this. Okay, so I think this is the third book. I might have gotten these two out of order because they're very close. I'm going with the masks in horror cinema. 
Okay, Mask and Harsena, Eyes Without Faces. Uh, this is the one that I think I most recently like came across and was like, okay, it looks like somebody's written me a book. Thank you. It looked like everything I want to know more. I started, I read the intro today and I was like, okay, this is going to touch on everything I'm interested in movies and horror and non-horror alike anyway. Um, so I'm very excited to, to like actually dive into this one, but really interested because this is less a subgenre. Like we've just hit a couple, what we would consider. Yeah. I want to know where this inspiration comes from uh, because also you have eyes without the face on the cover. And as we know, where I was telling you, it was on one of my walls. I'll show it over there afterwards. <laughs> so tell <laughs> us a little bit you. about the origin. Yeah, I know you do. I know you do. I know you do. <laughs> um, so this was, this was my second attempt at a PhD and this one went okay. fine. <laughs> so there's this little, I'm giving you a little like a bio, you know, autobiographical mapping. <laughs> It's like a job, oh, de- job description or something, yeah. I switched um, schools midway through as well. I get it. <laughs> yeah, I, I did this with my friend and my mentor and my wedding celebrant, um, Professor Angela Nadalianis, um, who is an incredible horror writer herself. She wrote an incredible book um, called The Horror Sensorium, which I would mm. recommend to everybody. This is one of those projects. So I have these sort of survey books that have just been sitting with me for a long, long time. And I quietly just, I have a spreadsheet, and I have a, a, you know, a Dropbox and I just quietly collect films. And I always knew I was going to do something on masks because I couldn't believe it hadn't been done. Mm. There's the, the Doug Bradley book is yeah. amazing, but he very, you know, and I, the but there is not to dim- diminish the importance of that book. But it's Doug Bradley, right? So he's talking about it from the perspective of an actor, you know, behind the horror mask. And um, that was a really important text for, for me. But I just couldn't believe, you know, I found articles or book chapters on specific films or or franchises that Mm -hmm. talked about the mask but there's never been that I know in English anyway that I mean certainly (laughs) I've done the PhD in the book now I'd be real upset to find out but I couldn't believe that there was nothing done specifically like a really deep critical dive on what masks do in horror because I guess masks are like 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 cemeteries and skeletons and you know they're so ubiquitous that to actually it's almost like the you know hidden in plain sight Mm-hmm. That they're everywhere in horror. They're everywhere, and and to you know, nobody had really stopped and dug deep into what they do collectively. Like both from a historical sense. So you know, I go back in the book way before film. Um, you know, back to the stage, back to Grand Guignol Theatre. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, literature. Um, you know, lots of you know, uh, Noah, ancient theory. ancient Greek theatre. You know, it, um, there's a very long history of this stuff. I mean, masks are one of the most, you know, one of the earliest human created cultural artifacts. They're extraordinary. And lots of different cultures, which yeah. is super interesting. It right? is like, amazing. That it's and- all, they're all doing it at the same time, but from totally different reasons. And some are ritualistic, some are for totally different, you know, reasons. It's, it's really incredible. There's something really primal. And I use mm. that word, you know, in inverted commas. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I was really fascinated with that history and I feel very strongly that contemporary horror uh, or just horror cinema in general, not even contemporary horror, but certainly since the mask sort of codified as a central um, piece of iconography and horror from the 70s onwards, yeah, um, you know, it, it it does so much cultural work and it's, mm. it's cultural work that goes back thousands and thousands and thousands of years and horror is a forum where that cultural work can continue, where we can see masks and we understand what they do to identity and to power in a whole bunch of different ways. So that, that you know, my, my three big keywords in the book are ritual, power, and transformation. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're like the drumbeat in the book because whatever, you know, again, you know, like rape prevention films, these are really diverse movies. You know, horror films 
that use masks in a really key way, you can't say they all do X. Um, They're too diverse, but they understand, I think, at their core that there is this enormous power that is in our, our, you know, our ancient brain about what masks can do. And little kids understand that. And it's not even masks. You know, you see a baby and you put your hands over your face and do peekaboo. It's about, you know, hiding and then revealing the face. There's enormous power in that. And it's, it's, it works beyond our intellect. And it just is so exciting to me, as you can probably tell, because I'm sort of hyperventilating a little bit. Yeah. Well, it's the the duality of it all. Like, because as as I was reading at the start, today, I was like, okay, I was thinking about the basic one, like, uh, Michael Myers not as mask, but as the kid when he's the child. Michael Myers putting on to to actually kill, he has to put on this mask, this childlike mm-hmm. mask, um, because it a it it obscures his identity for one, but at the same time, it makes him more himself. It frees him these impulses and desires, and then I think of like eyes wide shut, and it's like it's freeing these people's desires because they're becoming anonymous, but in the same, so they're becoming more themselves but maybe not more themselves because it's not real. you know what I mean? Because it's in a sense a fictional state too because they're not wearing their faces while they do these things. So has, so in other words, everything has a bit of duality. And I, I, once I started thinking down the rabbit hole, I was like, oh yeah, this is real. This definitely can be a book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and here it is. So that's helpful. Yeah, there's definitely books on like mask in theater, which as you mentioned, is like a huge, huge historical thing. Actually, most when I'm thinking like the early theaters, like Greeks even getting into like, the the Japanese uh, Commedia dell'arte like it's all very like mask reliant, um, yeah. but then when we shift away from that, it it becomes more about personable like being the actor and what you bring to it. But yeah, the mask is so fascinating in how we use it in horror because it's always as the evil, um, and I I can't think of one where it's the good. Um, in any capacity. You know, there's a couple of really interesting examples where the mask is almost a prison. And I'm thinking, again, of Poughkeepsie tapes. Poughkeepsie tapes does amazing things with masks mm. in that both the the monster, and I will call him a monster even though it's not a supernatural film, but the mm-hmm. villains feels too weak. I'm obsessed with that film. Um, so we have a, a killer who wears a mask in one of the most terrifying scenes I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, but he forces his victim to wear a mask. So mm-hmm. if we think about films like... Um, Oh, Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. Is that the right? Oh, I got the title right. Please forgive me. I just had a. Is that the, That's the, the one with Benny from Ellie Bird? Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah. he's he's master's punishment. It's almost like a prison. Right. And even, and I think that's one of the things that makes Eyes Without a Place so, Eyes, mm-hmm. Eyes Without a Place, Eyes Without a Face so special <laughs> is that it's both, it's but it's almost, it's, it's a prison, mm-hmm. but not, you know, it, it sort yeah. of keep, it hides her wounds, but it is also a kind of prison. And that idea of the mask as a prison goes back, of course, you know, the man in the iron mask, we see it in, um, you know, Barbara Steele, yeah. you know, with that famous yeah, yeah. metal mask. So it's really complicated. And there are so many different kinds, you know, I, I mean, I break it down into five categories. So I think there's skin masks, blank masks, animal masks, repurpose masks are really mm-hmm. interesting so like yeah. a hockey mask and welding masks and um and what i call technological masks so and, and i do think found footage horror it was great writing the mask book because i realized how you know we think of things like um uh peeping tom you know michael mm-hmm. powell's peeping tom and the way that he uses the camera in that film is like mm-hmm. a mask yeah. it actually mm-hmm. functions in terms of ritual and transformation and power as a mask and even in you know that whole why don't you put the camera down why are you still filming there's a great line in Blair Witch where, where it's like I just I feel more protected I feel more powerful if I have the camera it's something that you wear on your face 
that, that the depersonalization you. too. Yeah, yeah. depersonalize the victim. Yeah, I mean, ser- that's why in real, you know, true fiction, right? True, true crime, rather. A lot of these killers, you know, had used things like this too. Even Hannibal Lecter, right, is using it. Some of these things as a way to, uh, you know, make the dis- distance or even get into character. It's almost like a a team uniform. Mm-hmm. In some ways, for sports to get that other layer that you need uh, to do something. It's no, there's. I, I thought of what was interesting as I was thinking about it. How some of them are coming from different countries, but doing like if you think about the way the mask is used and the way it looks in Demons, and then you think about Onababa, they're actually really similar. And yet, these are two movies from different eras, different countries. But there's something to even the way the masks look and the way they're being used in the film. So, yep. Matt, it's it's utterly fascinating to me some of that. Well, I mean, something like even even if we move beyond masks, and I I can't really couldn't really do that in the book. But um, if you look at something like George Romero's Bruiser right. and the history of mime, I mm-hmm. think there's a really interesting history there. I mean, both um, comedy. Commedia dell'arte and no theater have an enormous legacy in contemporary horror. Mm-hmm. Um, just, just enormous, and it pops up where you don't expect it to pop up. Um, but yeah, th- those two particular theatrical traditions, I think, have an enormous legacy uh, that well, just can't makes, be understood. I mean, Commedia dell'arte masks are horrifying, even though that they were never yeah, intended weird, to be. Yeah. I mean, it's all this like grotesque. And I mean, they were doing it as like a comedy thing at the time, but they are also just grotesque um, and and distorted. Like it becomes almost gargoyle like. Um, so in terms, of, yeah, you, you're talking about bruisers, interesting. And at the very mm-hmm. top of this, we were talking about Alice, sweet Alice, where that translucent type of mask, where you can see the human face beyond it, but not quite. I find that that's a, the very eerie. That's that um, you know very other quality, the Julia Christieva, you know, abject theory. That stuff where you're like, oh, I don't know if I feel comfortable what I'm looking at, uncanny. But um, I, yes, I, yeah. the masks are really interesting because you also get in that the um the old Scooby Doo. You know the peeling off the you know yeah. meddling yes. kids. You know that yeah. moment. You know the the um, yeah. and we get that it's a spoiler, but it's like a 1981 film. So come on, come on, people, grow up. But um, happy birthday to me. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, the the so that has like two of them though. Right? It has like two endings. It goes one ending, then another <laughs> ending. So you can spoil one of them. It's fine. But, <laughs> but that has like that full on Scooby Doo yeah. yeah. face reveal. So that's a skin mask. Um, yeah. something like. Um, Dr. Fibes, I think, is amazing. Oh, it's the you best know, reveal. He has, yeah, we, he has like a Vincent Price mask over. Yeah, over his burnt know, Vincent yeah, Price horror, face. You know, yeah. And I, I, I love skin masks because they're so complicated. And it, I mean, Alice Sweet Alice to me is like a masterclass in what mm-hmm. masks can do in a film. Um, I think that that's one of yeah. my favorite case studies in the entire book because yeah. it's yeah. so so complex it's so deep and it's one of those films that you know you watch with beer and popcorn and it's fun and it's great and it totally holds up as that kind of movie um but then it's like it is just so deep it is just Mm. so deep yeah, I'm not even going to go into mine because Becca's heard me talk about it so much, but I'm pretty sure your book gets to it because you mentioned it in the intro, and that's uh, from our Canucksploitation friends, Curtains, the old hag Oh, mask. yeah, that is a great I-, I think that's my favorite, one of my favorite horror images in my life was just watching that movie and seeing that face coming at me on the ice, you know, the, uh, ice skating is a, just a terrifying sequence um but i don't know what what your your angle on the in the book was on yeah i I mean i think straight up curtains is like a radical text when it comes Mm. to gender politics Mm. um it's it's cult but it should be more cult like there's there's no limit to how well known that film should be i think it's incredible what it does with monstrosity and women and age which Mm. is such a taboo subject you know and performance it's about acting yeah yeah yeah. it really is it's so complex it's such a sophisticated film 
Yeah, no, I think it got a bad rap because maybe it, maybe the shift in directors and the sh- shifting tone, but it's there's still it's like two really good movies in one movie, you know, in mm-hmm. a sense. I it's think. also one of my favorite history. endings too. Oh yeah, yeah it yeah, had yeah. a history of difficult releases as yeah. well, so I'm sure that that didn't help. So, uh, um, so Becca, one, what's a mask horror? Tourist trap. Oh, so, yeah. yeah, that yeah, one definitely. for me. That is for me the end all. I mean, I guess Halloween, whatnot. But yeah, the tourist trap for me. When I think like which movie has the most terrifying masks, it, it's tourist trap for me. And it was one of the first ones where I remember being just absolutely horrified by the mask. Halloween, I'm scared of Michael Myers, like as a being. Um, but in tourist trap, it's it's the masks um, because even when they're on dummies they're still horrifying and it's got and they're different in it what i realized is the the mask even when they're on people they black the eyes on the other side so there's always like this void it's always there's nothing Mm. there and um so there's never any connection it's not like you know you're seeing unblinking eyes through a mask there's just nothing and the fact that they cut it so that it's this like decrease so it all looks very um like the jaw lines are all exposed and it looks very marionette in that capacity and so it really does take it to a different level than if it's like a half mask or anything like that and masks aren't usually cut in quite that manner. So that was clearly an aesthetical choice um, in this movie. And it it makes it so much scarier. And it's weird just to think like the amount of skin that you are allowing to be exposed on the face can make all the difference. But that movie, even, you know, watching it now, decades later, it's still unnerving because of those masks. I will also give a quick shout out to a Midnight Movie from 2009 is one that doesn't get much love, but it's got, it's a cool skull mask. And this is at the same time as a whole bunch of skull masks. Yeah, chrome skull and all that. Chrome skull, there was a whole bunch of skull masks, but I, um, I really liked this movie across the board and thought it did some interesting things with the mask as well. Yeah, no, I, I'm 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 excited to keep reading this book because it, it just to me seems like there's so much to keep thinking about. Mm-hmm. If especially where you use words like ritual or transformation, there this is it's almost like it could be three books. You know, you could see the chapters. Okay, so hopefully that got somebody hooked. Somebody's excited. Yeah. If you haven't, and also by the way, if you haven't seen Eyes Without a Face, <laughs> it, it it really is one of my in my top five of movies I saw in a theater that I didn't know anything about when I went. It's like I'd seen a poster and went to like i think it was in new york you know when i was 20 or something and mm-hmm. and just m- your mind changes like i didn't know horror could be that beautiful I, I i probably had seen tim burton films by then but didn't realize oh this must have been one of the biggest influences aesthetically on him and it's and yet he's not completely doing this but it's that feeling um so anyway if you haven't seen that film yet from 1960 must see um okay so um we're gonna skip over a thousand woman um that film because i'm you know i'm just a dude we'll move on to no, just kidding. go dude <laughs> i'm kidding that would be the bro move um, so the next book is called a thousand woman in horror 1895 to 2018 yeah so and so this is yeah just very inclusive. And I think what has impressed me most about this one is looking through it. There was so much in it that I had no idea. Like even just Seashell and Clergyman was one that you alerted me to a couple of weeks back that I was like, holy shit, I never even knew about this. Honest to God, if that's the only thing that that book accomplishes is getting you into Seashell and the Clergyman. <laughs> it was worth I it. honestly feel so that worth Jermaine, I've said this before, but we should be building cathedrals to Jermaine Dolak. Like those of us in horror, like she is our queen and we don't know her because the surrealists were pigs and they weren't happy with the fact that the first surrealist film was made by a woman who was also a massively out lesbian. 
I'll, I'll tell <laughs> I, you, I watched that movie about 20 years ago, and I 100% thought it was made by man because of the name at that time. And it was part of an anthology on a disc. No clue the history of who made it until Becca mentioned it a couple weeks ago. Yeah, I teach uh, um, on Monday evenings. I teach this class um, for the grad students at USC, which we call the lounge. And it's just like this really casual thing where we kind of like redefine what the class is each week. It's wild and I absolutely love it. But um, the week after I watched it, I was doing book report week where everybody had to bring a book report on a film. And so I brought the students my book report on that movie. And I included all of these references of the surrealist calling her a fat cow and fucking Artard. Don't even get me started about that man. Do not get off (laughs) on her. I don't want to believe Bunuel would have said bad things about her, would he? He would have been a bit I later. Think or? He was there. I don't. Yeah, I don't think he was. Yeah, Boonwell was a little bit. Yeah, so he and, strikes me as a little cooler when it comes. Well, to Well, he was stuff, cool yeah. with like Darren. I mean, like they were partying together. But yeah, yeah. Artard is just a dick across the board. Um, and everything that I found about him just kind of emphasized that. But I brought this as like my okay case study. See Cell in the clergyman, and it was just, and the students were just completely wowed by it as well. So it was just wonderful. But I, I do think some people might think that, you know, they might have an idea of what this book is. I know I did. And I was like, when I opened it, I thought, oh, it's going to be a profile on a thousand, you know, filmmakers or festival programs. And it, and it's just, it cuts across every type of influence on film. And every type from acting, producing, directing to people behind it, it really is quite a fascinating, like encyclopedic, um, you know, who's who of us, of, of something that's never fully been explored. Yeah. I realized really early on with that project that like it started off, I've said this before, like it started off as 50 women in horror and then a hundred women in horror and then 500. Yeah. And it's like, okay, I'm going to have to stop at a thousand. But the whole point is that it's not enough. So the it's it, I knew that it was doomed from the start in that there was, you know, people going to say, I can't believe you left this person out. So I had to kind of embrace that. And it's like, okay, so instead of trying to tick all the boxes of the quote unquote important women, why don't I do a snapshot? So rather than looking at as, you know, the significance of individual people, and there are individual people in that book that are hugely significant, like you you know, I couldn't have published that book without Debbie Rashon for starters, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really wanted to create a, a kind of map across those thousand women. So not just a, um, a geographical map, but also a historical map. Um, and that was really, really important to me. So, and that almost gave me a little bit of wiggle room, you know, when it came to who do I put in and who do I take out, um, that gave me enormous freedom because it was really about saying, okay, there are so many more women in this in this working in this genre and and it's not you know it's not just the the sexy jobs right it's not just it's not just acting or directing it's negative cutters it's people who work in sound you know it's it's there you know it's women doing stunts like these are like there's like i wanted to really flesh that out but yeah it came from i was doing a whole bunch of quite separate work on women so i sort of had these two research interests one on women's filmmaking and one in horror and horror and you know gender politics is clearly where you know, the bulk of my passion has gone. But around the time that I proposed this book, um, I, you know, I'd, I'd gotten a research fellowship to work on Australian women's filmmaking of the 80s and 90s, which was a super just exciting period here for women's filmmaking. Um, and I'd co-edited a book on Elaine May. Um, so I was doing all this work on women's filmmaking and I was, you know, at the same time doing all this stuff on horror and it was just natural. It was just like a really logical intersection. It's like, okay, this is this is where this is all going. Um, and it's really exciting because it was my first really, I kind of cut, you know, again, going back to something perhaps a little bit more autobiographical, 
But it's probably the first, um, except for the smaller books, the smaller, you know, single film focus books, I really wasn't interested in it being an academic book. So I really mm. gained a lot of confidence in gaining my voice and I had a very different mm. vision of the audience for this book, uh, which was enormously liberating for me. Um, you know, who, you know, my image of who I wanted to read the book really helped me write it in a very different way um, that was extremely intimidating but also really, really, really rewarding. Mm. And so that one's been out just for about a year, Yeah, right? I think it came out July, yeah. July 2020. Mm-hmm. Of a pandemic. <laughs> yes, in the of middle a global of a People pandemic. had reading time. Yeah. They're going re- to read every single yeah. one of these thousand women. <laughs> so of those thousand, you get to choose one. One. <laughs> right now to highlight one, one person. Well, I've already named up Debbie Rashawn. I've already <laughs> named up Jermaine okay, yeah, that's true. Um, I'm okay, sort of, yeah. can I go through all thousand? Um Oh God! <laughs> Let me see. Um, Why don't we, we we do ours? Yeah, and you do ours. And, I can't. Like, I mean, I, I guess that's you. the thing. Is it? It's it, it's all about the. For me, it was about the collective. It was about yeah, the. It was about the critical mass of them, um, yeah, rather than rather than one single woman. I really didn't want it to be a hierarchy, which is why I went. Well, well, actually. Well, you know, because, you know, Debbie Roshan, I've always just thought was one of the, seems like one of the coolest people. And I know Becca got to work with her for a long time yeah. in New York. So why, but, you know, for you, what, what you, by, even by singling her out, what was it about her that you felt was important? Look, I've always loved Debbie's films. Um, and when I just cold called her, like a couple of the interviews in the book, I really, with the interviews, um, I really didn't want to just go for, you know, big, big rock star names. And, you know, I have like, um, um, Oh my god, I've forgotten her name. Catherine Hardwick. Bigel- oh, Hardwick. Yeah, Twilight. You know, there, there's some some names there that will obviously be familiar to people. Debbie is obviously one of those people. But I also wanted to do people like Izzy Lee, um, B- BJ Colangelo's in there. You know, I, I wanted to, um, you know, some Australian filmmakers, Isabel Peppard, uh, Mia Kate Russell, Donna McRae. Like these are people that I, I wanted to sort of really sort of signal boost those voices as well. Um, but Debbie. I can't even describe. So I loved her films. She was a no-brainer in terms of who do I want to talk to about their career. But she's one of these women that is unrelenting in her support for other women, just unrelenting. Mm-hmm. And the way that she has supported me, um, not just publicly by, you know, hey, you should buy this book, but just just like you go, girl, like just pep talks, like mm. that energy. I mean, and, and she, you know, she's directing and everybody should see Model Hunger because it's amazing. Um, I just, I, I have nothing but praise for Debbie Rashawn. She's seen a lot of shit and I'm waiting for her book. Yeah. Like my life depends on it. Um, mm. But yeah, she's a woman whose stories we need to hear. Yeah, she had told us back um, during our Fango radio days, which is now almost 15 years ago that we we worked together for years. We worked. Um, literally, our desks were side by side. And um, I remember at that time that she she kept saying, I'm going to write a book someday. And I, I remember she was going to call it like something about sorry about my brain or something like that. Um, she had at the time, um, she was having brain surgery. And again, she's been through some shit. And um, yeah, and and I am so glad she is finally getting that out. So, yeah. Becca, you get one woman. Okay. Well, Elric, you're going to like this one because you're the one who alerted me to this film. And I don't even know if you connected that it is directed by a woman. Oh, wow. And okay. That would be twice in one episode. <laughs> Joel DeMott, the director of My Demon Lover Diary. 
Oh, well, I knew Demon Lover. I think it was a husband and wife team. It's but- directed by his wife. Oh, okay, only. interesting. He what? is the subject. She is the director. Ah, uh, interesting. Okay, yeah, I love that's, that's an amazing. I don't best literally know that. I haven't seen that. Oh, oh my god, but this is we, so we'll this, we'll Dropbox this one this for you. I, yeah, I have a feeling. I love. It's like there's still so. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've got a filmography of like you know seven hundred plus films. There's so many that aren't there. Like this you, one's hard to mm. find. I bet you can find it on YouTube. Oh, I've got a copy. Right no, I got a copy. Oh, got a copy. Okay. This is we'll one of my favorite copy. films. Yeah. So this is a. It's a document. I'll call it a pseudo documentary. Um, no, it's real. It's full. It's, of yeah, it's. It feels like the predecessor to American movie. Yeah, big time. Um, where it's very small, and it starts with this husband and wife, and she opens with the camera pointing at her husband, and she says, "This is my husband, and he's the director of Demon Lover Diary, or My Demon Lover." And um, it's or, it's, or is he the? Is I think I can't remember. He might be the DP who's going to shoot it. So yeah, something like them that. Them yeah. documenting this that movie, yeah. tiny little indie film being made, and I think it's like 1980. Yeah. Um, and so it's real punk rock. It's real tiny. Um, and he is the subject as he's going through the motions of making this little no budget demon possession film in 1980, and I think they're in New York, um, yeah, like, like upstate that, yeah. New York, and then it's her documenting the whole thing and so and it's very much like american movie and like some of the comic parts Mm -hmm. like i think i think the director somebody is like selling some part of his body or does something with his fingers at some point i just i haven't seen it for a few years but there's parts that you're like is this real but it is all real it's just you know so apparently i just um looked it up while we were talking it was filmed in 1975 it was a released very, very briefly in 1980. It was virtually lost from everything until somebody posted a work print online in the um, early 2000s. And so all that we have now is this work print of it that exists. Um, But it is is a gem, Um, a definite like punk rock indie filmmaking gem directed by a female. Cool. Yeah. No, I didn't know. I mean, I knew. I knew there a husband and wife were involved. I didn't realize she was making. That's great. Yeah. I'm glad you pulled that out. Uh, and and now I'll, I'll look for my copy and, and send it to you. Alexander. So good. Um, and mine, you're gonna have to actually help me pronounce the last name. Uh, this is one of my favorite movies the last 20 years. Um, I start right when it came out, and it trumped all of Gaspar Noe's work, even though she works uh, close by. And that is Lucille has had has, has to have a Lovic. I would never have gotten it. Has, nope. has, has, uh, I've said her name many wrong many times, but she is, uh, she directed a film um, called Innocence, which just knocked my socks off. I mean, I was a big um, fan of Renee Magritte paintings. And then I saw this movie and I was like, I'm pretty sure she just found a way to make this look like a Magritte painting in terms of the, the night and day being in the same shot. There's a frame of like uh, two young schoolgirls walking off down this like path where it looks partially night, partially day. And that's like a famous Magritte. It's probably, you know, an influence on the, I assume Bennett Debbie shot this too. He shoots all of Noe's stuff. And, and, you know, Lucille was the partner of Gaspar, I think still is. Still is, I believe. Oh, still is. Okay. And edited the early films too. And so, um, but it's just, it's really, it has the worst IMDb write-up I've ever seen. I looked it up and it said something like, it's about a offbeat school. It literally used the word offbeat school for girls. And I was like, offbeat? There's a lot more sinister things at work in this, but it's it's using, I guess, puberty and adolescence and, uh, you know, the male gaze uh, Mm -hmm. are all surrounding what is almost like it's almost like a prep school for Suspiria or something. You know, it's, it's really not like any movie I've ever seen, to be honest. And it has so many different, um, push and pulls on desire at play while you're watching it. 
And then, of course, I was like waiting the next year for her next film and another year. And this is where I start to go, wait a minute, if that had been Gaspar Noe, he would have made another movie by now. And so instead it was 14 years later where we got to see Evolution, uh, which is, you know, equally beautiful mm-hmm. and visionary, but there's something about Innocence that it still has a really not a very good release in America. It hasn't got a Blu-ray here. Um, but it's, you know, when people ask me, this is like, Becca's been hearing me do this for about a, a decade, whenever anyone asks for a recommendation, I'm always like, look, there's nothing quite like this movie. Yeah. It has to have a little bit, has a new film coming out this year, I believe. Oh. It's her first English language okay. film. It's called Earwig and the good people at Rook oh. Films, I believe. It's Andy Stark um, uh, uh, helping midwife that one into fruition. I think it's that and and the um, Julia Ducournau film, I think, are my two most anticipated films of the year um but has to have a look is amazing if you can chase down her shorts they're incredible i haven't seen her shorts um, okay she's just an extraordinary filmmaker so she's good friends with um uh helene katat and bruno fazzani and peter strickland and i i you know they they know each other socially but they also i think has to have a look has said this and and i know that peter i know i know peter and, and helene mm-hmm. and bruno that they all kind of make they're all making in the same space and they're sort of mm-hmm. um ex- they're, they're sort of experimental genre filmmakers that's really what they do yeah. and, and they're such I, I always think of that group as a kind of almost as a collective because I think they're so in tune with mm-hmm. each other um and they make you know th- their films aren't all the same you know they each have a really strong authorial voice but they're really tapped into each other it does feel like a collective I think those four filmmakers yeah, the new one by um, Helene Katet, uh what was the one with – we were just talking about it about a week ago, the kind of Western noir let the, crime. Let the corpses tan. Let the sleep – Oh, let the, let the corpses let the, tan. You yeah. know, that, that, that was to me their best. It, it just really kind of blew me away. They are ex- I mean, Helene is an exceptional she's, – she's an exceptional woman in horror and she's really interesting because I think it's so hard to separate what she does from Bruno because they are such tight collaborators – and it's really interesting when you get men and women who collaborate on filmmaking together. You know, sometimes it's like, oh, well, maybe you do one thing and you do another. But Helene and Bruno are inseparable. They have a really shared vision. You know, they're partners um, and, and they're just fascinating. They're just such interesting people. And they just have a really pure vision, which I know is a bit corny. Um, but they, they, they are just unrelentingly, inf- you know, inflexible when it comes comes to their films and I love their movies. I, I co-edited a book on both their, their movies and Peter Strickland. So maybe Lucille's next, oh, cool. who knows? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, I didn't know that one, yeah. Um, okay, so I'm glad we got to, got to give a little love there. And then the one that none of us have seen yet, but I has it come out or is it coming out? The yeah, Giallo Canvas, Art Excess and Harrison. Yeah, that came out um, only a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago. Um, okay. Who was the publisher on that's that That's McFarland. Oh, nice. Okay. So that's that's out now. Um, and yeah, that, that one was a long time coming. I mean, it really, as I said, you know, that one, that book started as, um, I want to write a book about Jalo film, but then I also want to write a book about the use of art in horror, you know, the actual mm-hmm. objects, you know, art objects and the concept of art. So not, not art cinema, quote unquote art cinema, but the actual physical presence of art in, in horror is something mm-hmm. that's always really fascinated me. And when I realized how much I'd written on, that exact subject, you know, like, and not even just Jalo, but, you know, if you think of Suspiria with the, the irises or uh, Deep Red with the, mm-hmm. the, the mural or, yeah, I mean, Argento is obsessed with this Stenthal syndrome. Um, but I just realised that I'd written on so much on this particular subject anyway that a book felt really natural. Like it just, it's like I can actually write an entire book on the use of art just in Jalo film. Um, and it's just mm-hmm. a passion project. It really, in a way, it kind of deviates, I guess, from some of my other 
books, but I, I don't care. I was going to write it and I loved writing it and I love those movies. They, they, Jello completely rewired my engagement with film. I started, I've, I talk about this in the book, but I started off um, discovering those films as a kind of ironic teenager, you know, like hiring stuff with my friends to get stoned to and laugh at because they're so bad, they're good. Mm-hmm. And it was um, Lindsay Spasmo was like a regular hire and we were obsessed with it because the mannequin on the front cover looked exactly like Tori Amos, which we thought was hilarious. <gasps> and it's one of those things, like if you Google the VHS box of, of, of Spasmo, you'll see it and you'll go, oh, my God, she's completely right. You can't unsee it. I'm doing it right now. <laughs> like it was like my 50th viewing of Spasmo and it was like my brain had been completely rewired where I was like, this is the most beautiful radical amazing film and there was just no turning back my taste you know that i i i just nothing infuriates me more than things like guilty pleasures <laughs> or so bad it's good and giallo is just magical cinema you know it's it's yeah. often challenging um but it, and and it's deep it's deep art historical engagement is not a coincidence. So, you know, there's been amazing stuff written about Giallo in terms of being, um, you know, it's it's industrial context and its relationship to Italian cinema and European cinema and transcultural flows and all of that stuff. All amazing work, all really important. And I absolutely was a bit self indulgent with this, saying, "Look, that's all great, but I want to talk about I want to talk about paintings." <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I forget how yeah specific it's going. So because we haven't read this one yet, so you've you've mentioned a few titles already because of Stendhal, and uh, we were talking about what is the other title for the the frightened woman? I always forget the more known. The, the laughing title. woman or feminine writing woman. La- yeah. Feminine writings. That's the, yeah, that's such a great title, and that finally got a release. I beautiful, think this year, so. beautiful release. And yeah, long overdue. Really yeah. famous feminist sculpture that's used in that film. It's like really directly engaging with like a major contemporary artwork it's incredible i don't know if i did this right because i don't think i well you you tell me the perfume of the lady in black is that also got i mean i remember she's because she's obsessed by a vase in that there is a there is a it's there is a painting in that film um so yeah. that what's interesting about that movie is that the director is actually a painter oh, um, so he he's a really fascinating i i talk about that film in relation to hybridity um mm. and and same same with um uh laughing woman feminino ridens um because yeah. The uh, Perfume of the Lady in Black is also, it's, you know, it's a a Gaston Leroux novel that the title comes from, heavily engaged with Alice in Wonderland and John Tenniel's illustrations, um, play Mm -hmm. quite heavily in the representations of girlhood in that film. Um, But, yeah, uh, Borelli himself is a painter and um, there's a painting in Mimsy Farmer's bedroom, which he, that was the inspiration for that film. He had an image for a painting and the film grew out of this image that he had for a painting and the painting's actually in the film. So it's a, the way that wallpaper, it sounds like such a small thing, but the way that wallpaper oh, yeah, works yeah. in that film is really painterly. Um, and yeah, yeah, just when you realize that he's an, a, an artist, um, and, and it just changes. I mean, I think it's an incredible film anyway. It's one of my favorite genres. Yeah, It's one of my favorite I've seen this year. I hadn't seen it before this year. And it, it's Mimsy. I've got, been on this weird Mimsy Farmer kick. It just, uh, I sort of wrote to Selena. I love wrote to just Selena like, so much. I, I thought it was one of the best film I'd seen in a very long time. Like it really mesmerized me. And so I've been, every time she pops up, she popped up when we're doing, uh, Argento's second movie. What's the, uh, rock drumming, um, uh, when she has a great turn. Flies on Grey Velvet. Yes, uh, but so but this film, yeah, it really struck me because it's also kind of from the repulsion model, uh, ver- you know, a little different than some of the jowls. It's much more that type of movie. Um, so if people haven't seen, it, I just I when I picked it, I, I forgot I was picking a giallo, but I wasn't thinking of the art. <laughs> so I haven't seen this one it's yet, beautiful. Um, and it's I went. Beautiful. 
Yeah, I went a completely different direction where I was thinking about the art, but I was not thinking physical art. I was thinking mm. just I'm making art. And I wanted to do, um, this is contemporary, um, giallo infused. So I went knife plus heart, um, oh. which is pure giallo. I mean, this is like literally just somebody picked up the giallo trope and plopped it down in 2018 um, and put it in France. Um, but yeah, it, it's got this this wonderful infusion of creating um, porn, but it's really arty porn. And so it has this wonderful kind of uh, sociological commentary going on about how disregarding everyone is of porn. And it's gay porn, which adds this this other societal level to it that's going on. But at the same time, it's all very artistic. And then the killer is kind of coming out of this particular environment. And so there's there's so much going on in this. It, it's um, actually, yeah, it's it. actually, I don't do a deep analysis of it, but I have a chapter on filmmaking as an art form. Oh. So the use of yeah. filmmaking. Okay, in that's how, it's really, it's, so I'm not crazy. No, 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 it, it's, it's in there. So there's, um, uh, a Blade in the Dark, the Lamberto Bava Ooh, film, yeah. mm-hmm. fits into yeah. that, you know, the idea of um, I, there's something about Giallo where the making of the making of art, whether it's film, um, you know, Michelle Savi um, and, and Stage Fright is about theatre. She called it a Giallo, Elric. You it's heard it. It's a Giallo. We've I, already, he calls I've it a Giallo. about it being a slasher. I think it's so, a slasher from Italy. Okay. okay. It's just now, like Neo Giallo, like. I know. See, we're going to open Torso, this Torso is also in that hard we're to know. this back up. So a couple of years ago, we're doing a top 10 Giallo draft and I put stage fright on it and Elric vetoes me and he's like, it's not a Giallo. And Wait, I'm did like, I leave? Did it get kicked off or not? I can't remember. I no, I thought it made it on. No, I think it made it on. No, you kicked off lizard in a woman's skin. But not because it wasn't Giallo. We didn't kick it off because it wasn't Giallo. We only had seven spots of all the Giallos. And I had a Fulci I wanted to play ahead of that one. You let me keep stage fright, but I remember you adamantly arguing with me. No, yeah, no, I do. That that and Torso art feel more influenced by slashers, but they can be, you know, it's all just semantics. It's so interesting (laughs) to me because so many of these films are in the book because even something like Torso that you don't think has anything to do with art, the whole – Torso is centered around her art lecturer, her art history. It's, yeah. It begins yeah. with an art I was going to say, aren't they? And they have a conversation you? about the representation of St. Sebastian in art. So mm. even these jello, like a lizard in a wizard, lizard in a woman's skin is deeply art historical. There's like tableau oh vivant in there. Mm. There's direct references in there to, to Dali, to, to, um, Francis Bacon. There's a, there's so much going on when in that film. Mm. Yeah, when she's dreaming, all of the the weird hippie characters are always resembling the tableau, so they're yeah. mimicking. She actually has a Dali print behind her in bed, and the bed is a frame. Um, the frame of the bed looks like one of Francis Bacon's boxes. It's incredible. Mm. Like, I mean, and Fulci used to be an art critic. Like, it's not it's not coincidental. The guy was mm. he did a film called The Psychic, which is probably one of my favorite of. Oh, yeah. of his. So good. we both love it. We love uh, it. And I mean, it, and, yeah. and that's just you know, uh, Setinotto in Nero is the the other name that it's known by, and that is all about a, a Vermeer painting, which is great. But the the backstory to that is that that particular Vermeer painting was stolen in real life, so he's riffing on an mm. actual story. Um, so oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's. I mean, he's amazing. I mean, obviously, you know, when we think of yeah. the use of art um, in, you know, in in Jalo, we think of Argento most obviously for the films that we've already talked about. But the beyond, yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, I mean, Peter Strickland's yeah, um, Barbarian Sound Studio, like one of you know the great neo Jalos, is very much yeah. about this. You know, the the art. You know, the the place of art within these films. Um, mm-hmm. And it taps into that really. I mean, even even you know, we talked about Helen and Bruno, their film "Strange Color of Your of 
strange color of your body's tears has like a mucha, um, Alphonse mucha, um, mural on a ceiling in, in, in mm, an amazing sequence right. in that. And it's just everywhere. It's one of those things that once you get a sensitivity to how in touch with art Jalo is as a, as a subject, um, mm-hmm. you can't unsee it. It's everywhere. It's just everywhere. Well, so, yeah, I was just doing a funny for the other podcast I do. We were just doing a sampler of all the different Italian subgenres of the time that we were often like fads. But what stands out with Giallo, it's just, it's so, they're, they're made so well. They're so slick and classily made compared to those other fads that are fast and cheap and out of control mostly, like from spaghetti westerns to the Polizitaci. So it's so interesting how they stand out stylistically as art. You know, they kind of, it's 40 years later, they stand up in that way, which is fascinating too. Um, what was the one we always talk about? Oh, the fifth chord. Oh, beautiful. Uh, in terms of just the way it looks. Look, just let's a- just talk about the way Franco Nero looks. I don't want to get creepy. Here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's true. A quiet Place yeah. in the Country, um, the Elio Petri film, which is in, in yeah. my book because it's like one of the great yeah, classic, um, the great classic giallo, you know, giallo about painting. And I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm weird about Franco Nero. I'm going to stop talking now. <laughs> that, that one was right next to me. Like I had it on my shelf because it was like in my next to watch pile, but I can't see it now. Um, yeah, no, yeah, Franco Nero is beautiful. We've definitely had prior conversations about how hot Franco Nero is. In <laughs> Even Space Jesus Franco um, Nero is still good. Space so. I Jesus, love Space Franco Jesus Franco. Can, can we start a band called it's Space Jesus Franco Nero? Oh, yeah, of course we can. Yeah, of course we can. This is the moment to start it. Um, let's let's make sure we don't. So just because I know we're, we're running that low in time, yeah, but I want to make sure time, but we're coming back. Background. So, ten years ago, you wrote a book we mentioned at the top, and now it's not out yet, right? It's about to come out. It's doing a second release. Yeah. When is that coming out? So, at the moment, the uh, the release date is sometime in April. Um, these things can move forward. It is on pre order um, at um, at your usual online bookstores. I'm not going to give any big companies a plug because they don't need it. Um, but you can also pre order it from my publisher at McFarland Books. Um, yeah, it's the second, it's the 10 year anniversary second edition and it's been reworked quite significantly. Um, it, it almost feels like a new book to me, but maybe that's because I worked mm-hmm. on it. But, um, the big thing with it that, um, I'm really excited about and, and this was one of those things I was thinking of actually doing a whole new book on, but it, you know, when I talked to the publisher about doing a 10th anniversary edition, it just made so much sense to incorporate it in this book is a chapter specifically on women directed rape revenge films. Um, which feels very timely. Um, yeah, we've had many, many more of those than we've ever seen throughout history. I could name maybe one or two prior to the last five years, but in the last five years, I could name five. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's we're definitely seeing a lot of them. This right is now. not a lot. This is an yeah. This is what I find really interesting. Is that I mean, there is a long history of these films. Um, the Ladies Club by Janet Greek is amazing. I, I honestly think I was a teenage serial killer by Sarah Jacobson can be considered a rape revenge film. Oh, yeah. um, mm-hmm. You know, I guess it's all about definition. I'm very loose and elastic with my definitions. Rebecca, I know you're like queen of Doris Wishman, but um, Bad Girls Go to Hell, absolutely a really it's important total. film in the history of Most- rape revenge cinema. Most of her roughies would definitely yep. qualify that as well because it's always about um, some type of violent act taking place 
at the hand of man and then the woman being forced to combat it and do something in response. So even if we're looking like bad girls go to hell qualifies, but um, like every single other one, I think there's like five or six that qualify as for roughies have that exact same setup as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that film, I mean, you know, it's not an obscure film, but I do think that it's really underrated in the history of women directed rape revenge films and enormous empathy. Mm. It's the one thing, I mean, I find that Wishman's films are funny, um, but there's also enormous humanity in them. They're sleazy, mm. but they're oh humane. God. And and I just, you know, she's the queen. You know, this goes back to the women in horror book. You know, who do we talk oh, about? Yeah. But uh, Doris Wishman is almost one of those, you know, everybody, you know, everybody knows about Doris Wishman, but there's just so little really deep conversation about why she's so important. And, yeah, I I have her in there. It's like this is one of the most important early rape revenge, women-directed rape revenge films. So we can start there. Base Noir, yeah. you know, there's there's others. I mean, yeah, the Ladies Club. I feel really passionately about. Um, I think that's a really strong film. Doesn't doesn't Meshes of the Afternoon actually have an element to that? Like, there's an so element of abuse the at the heart of that, right? It's abuse. It's that because I mean, we see her, and it's very subtle, but we see him, and then he shatters because he's in a right. mirror, and then there is one tiny moment because I analyze this with my students yeah. every freaking semester, so I've seen it so often. Um, but there's after she's been through kind of the whole dream sequence at the end where he's going to wake her up and she puts her hands up yeah. in front of her face. Yeah, and, and then she's going to kill him with the knife and the yeah. eyes. So you're like, okay, this does have all the pieces. It might yes. just not be as linearly told. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I, I you know, that movie's one of the movies that made me fall in love with cinema. So um, always fun to, for, to pull it back up. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, well, that's- watch but, yeah. all the rest of her films as well. Like all of Maya's short films have the same level of image. Oh, I've seen it all. Yeah, like, yeah. I've, okay, I've, I was going to say like Of Sea is, is epic. And yeah. I think it's that um, thing that- Or Of Land. This yeah. is sort of one of my whole things is that rape revenge, it's not a genre. It's not a subgenre. It's hidden in plain sight. So people always think of, you know, rape revenge are their horror films or exploitation films. It's like the the- the enormity of rape revenge in westerns is yeah. just indescribable like it's it's an entire thing um you know that emerged before it emerged what's in horror actual, what's the west i am just the title slipping my mind but directed by a woman and it's about the rape at the start of it and it's oh um marlena the murderer in oh. forats the Indo- it might be the that indonesian one. film no no it's there's an american oh. western Directed by um, a woman that opens with a rape scene, uh, and it's and it is a. I'll have to I'll have to double check, it, but it's something that I saw a long time ago, and it really did make you could see that you know you could see the difference in perspective. You could feel that it was coming from a place of knowing more than you know guessing. It, it didn't, you know what I mean. It just had a different uh, thing to. Oh, I'll have to I'll have to look that up. <laughs> there's, there's um, so but, many. Yeah. There's just so many, yeah. and I know that I haven't covered them all in the book. And it's that thing where it's like, good. I know that sounds weird, and I think, oh, of course, yeah, my no, ego. Yeah. You know, maybe ten years ago, my ego would have been, I have to get every single one in here, and yeah. it's like maybe I don't. Maybe it's good that I don't, yeah. and maybe you know, yeah, you have to open the conversation. You exactly start. You start it. something. That's exactly like, it. That's so, what we do every week. Trust us, yes. we know. <laughs> and my big, my big thing with women directed rape revenge films is for people not to assume. And this is a massive bugbear with me, and it's a big thing that I I argue about um, or argue for in the book is that women have the right to make obnoxious, shitty, asshole films, and we do not give women filmmakers that right enough. Never. Um, and I Never. feel you're not allowed to have it. a bad one. Um, and it's like, I mean, I celebrate Roberta Finlay, who makes amazing films, but <laughs> they don't fit into this kind of Pollyanna-ish ideal of what women's filmmaking is. And that's one of the reasons that I like them, that and they're amazing films. But it's like, no, she makes Roberta Finlay films. She doesn't make 
quote unquote women's films. You know, she, I mean, and we just have to, you know, there are hardcore porn rape revenge films that were made in, you know, the seventies and eighties, um, made by women, directed by women. Um, there are Hong Kong category three films that are nasty. There are pinky films directed by women that are rape revenge films that are horrendous. (laughs) Like it's fine. Women can make, it's okay for women to make films that have quote unquote, you know, I hate the word so much, but a problematic representations of sexual violence because they're people and maybe they get it right. Maybe they get it wrong. The idea that women, you know, where this stuff becomes interesting, I think is that women are so invisible when it comes to, you know, this history is invisible. You know, there's this denial, there's this broad assumption that in 2017 with Weinstein and, um, and revenge and MFA and, and, you know, the, the, the reignition of Me Too that suddenly women started making rape, rape revenge films. And I, I will fight with a knife in my teeth. It's like, no, 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 women, 1950, Ida Lupino, not a rape revenge film, outrage, one of the best films about rape trauma I've ever seen. Women have yes. long been, lo- women filmmakers have long been interested in this. And they've made very, very different kinds of films about rape, whether they're rape revenge films or not. And not all of those fit what we might term as progressive labels and good because they shouldn't have to because of their gender because that's really fucking sexist. <laughs> yeah. And I also think at the end of that, uh, you said the movie I was thinking. I think it was Outrage. Uh, <laughs> I think that's the movie that I had in my head just, this whole time. So I think you nailed it at oh, the, the end. Oh, the Ida Lupino one? <laughs> yeah, I think it was that movie. Yeah, yeah. Because it, it, was, it was sticking my head. I was like, who was the Ida Lupino? It has to be. So yeah. anyway. Um, well, yeah, no, this, this has been a blast. I hope I hope this turns people on to, I know we couldn't go deep enough in the amount of time, but I think it will, you know, highlight to people the very different, um, you know, books you've been doing and uh, just work you've been doing in the genre for such a long time. Yes. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we will be back next week with an all new uh, Patreon show, Deep Cuts. And uh, we will be back the week after that with an all new Colors of the Dark. And please be checking our socials for details on our screening for this month, which we will be doing through USC again. Um, Hopefully, we'll have a really good one. I've reached out to some folks. We'll see what happens. Thank you. The Colors of the Dark podcast is a Fangoria production. Producers and co-hosts are Rebecca McKendry and Elric Kane. Executive producers are Tara Ainsley and Abby Gould. Associate producer is Jessica Soff of Amir. Sonic branding by Michael Rodriguez. And, of course, our amazing sound engineer, Ernie Hurtado. 